Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. You know, I'm a little revved up, okay, because this is a distraction. Vice President Biden spoke uh, to his comments on The Breakfast Club. He apologized. He clarified. He said he shouldn't have been so cavalier. But we need to move on and talk about the issues and what's really at stake here. The vice President shouldn't have said it. He apologized for it. Uh, but I really think the gall and the nerve of President Trump, I believe that Joe Biden was incorrect in, in saying uh, the statement, you ain't black. Uh, but I also believe that his apology was sufficient. That apology was given swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier, I apologize. To his credit, Joe Biden recognized within minutes that he had gotten carried away. I think uh, he has apologized and he should have uh, apologized. It was like, you know, one of those jokes that just falls flat. It's almost the end of the interview and you need to understand the context. I mean, Biden made an error. He apologized for it and didn't move on. I mean, we, we can obsess on this, but this is, in, in the scheme of things, this is not going to amount to diddly squat. And welcome back to Part B of our 28th of May, Year of Our Lord 2020 podcast. Hope you enjoyed the A part with all the craziness, because that was just the warm-up, my friends. Just the warm-up. So... We're going to be kind of haphazard. We start with a little bit of COVID stuff up front. We'll have COVID later. A lot of Biden craziness. And, of course, Memorial Day. Because it wouldn't be a holiday in America without the media shitting on vets. Because that's what they do. They take nice, healthy dumps on vets. So we start with Yahoo. They spread a liberal think tank claiming virus spiking in counties that voted for Trump, but the South, they're still clinging to this. Uh, while COVID-19 is finally beginning to wane in some of the U.S. cities as hardest hit and earliest, coronavirus spread is still far from its peak in most small cities. And over the past four weeks, it's been more likely that counties will show a high prevalence of coronavirus next if they voted for Trump. An analysis by the Brookings Institute reveals a high prevalence of coronavirus means a county saw coronavirus of a hundred or more per one hundred thousand. Hundreds of counties have gained high prevalence status over the past few weeks, and hundred and seventy six new counties joined that list from May tenth to seventeenth alone. Those hundred and seventy six counties voted for Trump by twelve percent margin. Trump outright won one fifty one. So they're pushing that. Well they never pushed that well every blue state that had the highest doses well, they all voted for Hillary, but that was never an argument because we we would never do that. My little county has 258 confirmed cases. We have three deaths that were out-of-towners who died in town, and of that, only one of them had COVID. Other two died of heart attacks, but they were COVID positive. What this article doesn't do and what the next article doesn't do, and none of these articles will ever do, is that now the restrictions on getting tested are lifted. You can go in without a fever. There are a lot of people that are coming down with COVID that never had a fever. 
They don't have fevers. But they still test positive. So yeah, there's a little spike. But there's 160,000 people in this county. And 258 cases is a drop in the fucking bucket. If anything, when I've noticed on the numbers, like my state went from number 19 to number 23. We keep dropping. Because as the media goes on to but the South, they forget that New York is still getting cases. They're still having people die. It's what they do. Our intro soundbite, and I totally forgot, because <laughs> I'm in between segments and I'm fucking up. That was a supercut of Move On from the Biden gaffe. So let me get that in so you know why I played it. Because it's a good way to talk about this podcast. We're going to move on in all subjects from anything that's negative for Dems. I mean, we have sound bites in here today that they're starting to blame fucking the nursing home. They're blaming Trump, for fuck's sake, for nursing home deaths to protect Cuomo. So we're just moving on. We're not going to count that there are... What the fuck is the last count? The last count is just astronomical. I mean, we're talking astronomical amount. What is it? It's over 350 now. Three hundred and seventy-five thousand in New York, hundred and fifty-seven thousand, hundred fifty-eight thousand, basically in New Jersey. And Illinois has one hundred fifteen thousand. So, what are you saying? What are you saying? Seriously, you can't make up for two hundred fifty-eight in Tennessee in one county that voted for Trump. You'll never make those numbers up. But then they do other flips. New York Times front page divides the coronavirus is deadliest where Democrats live. It's official. The coronavirus is a partisan weapon for the New York Times. The paper deployed its co-lead story slot Monday, Memorial Day. Virus at its deadliest in strongholds of Democrats. The online version of the headline was even blunter. The coronavirus is deadliest where Democrats live. Those are awfully partisan ways to frame the health crisis, seemingly geared to make or keep people angry and apart. Reporter Jennifer Medina and Robert Geloff told the faintly tasteless story of a red American blissfully unaware of the suffering of blue states while slamming right-wing media. The staggering American death toll from coronavirus now approaches 100,000, has touched every part of the country, but the losses have been especially acute along its coast and its major cities. The devastation, in other words, has been disproportionately felt in blue America. Of course, they go on, it's gay, it's Latina, it's that, it's this. Pew! COVID-19 deaths have declined in Democratic congressional districts since mid-April, but remains relatively steady in districts controlled by Republicans. Relatively steady, like one, one, one. And people just see the area described beneath each of those, assuming the number of people in red and blue areas, your concept, not mine, are about equal. The smaller the area is described beneath each line, the better. But do go on. Wow. Look at the framing here. Cases in Republican districts were never as high to begin with. What a load of shit. 
Christopher Cuomo was on board. Agreed, and so is pushing reopening during a pandemic while grossly underplaying the risks. Slow walking, testing, encouraging people to engage others. They didn't slow walk testing. The original testing is you had to have a goddamn fever to get one. You should know that, Chris, because your fucking skank ass got it. But that's what we're doing. I labeled this next soundbite, rewrite. Because we're rewriting. CNN's pushing that it's Trump fault that old people died. Not his brother, who didn't count them, force people back into fucking old folks' homes. No, 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 not them. And then just Cuomo babbling, because that's what Cuomo does. Nearly 100,000 Americans dead, and this president is playing games over Joe Biden wearing a mask, not to mention millions of other Americans now doing the same. How about the clowns who are ready to double down on the death toll because they want to get their party on for the holiday? I could show you example after example after example of people acting like fools, not just, you know, not having any sense for their own safety, but the safety of others. And that's not loving misery. That is embracing the mentality of caring for others. This is no longer about just setting a bad example. He's now using the power of the White House to try to weaponize common sense. Look, you know, the president's excited to see that Joe emerged from the basement. Um, it, it is a bit peculiar, though, that in his basement right next to his wife, he's not wearing a mask, but he's wearing one um, outdoors when he's socially distanced. So I think that there was a discrepancy there. Discrepancy. Big word. The follow up question was, wait a minute, isn't that the guidance? It's not about what you do with family and people you've already been exposed to. Oh, yeah. Got to check that transcript about the time she spent at Harvard. I got to tell you, because that is just dumb. What was just said there. You know what the guidance is. We're not asking you to wear masks in your basement with your family. We all know that. Why would the press secretary mangle it? Poison politics, us and them. Masks are dumb. Going out during a pandemic with no mask, yeah, have fun. Nursing home patients have been among the most vulnerable during this pandemic. Early during the crisis in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo issued an executive order saying that nursing homes could not deny patients based solely on a confirmed or suspected diagnosis of coronavirus. Some are now saying that may have done more harm than good. CNN's Jason Carroll uh, has this report. Jason. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says if his critics are looking for someone to blame about the number of coronavirus deaths at the state's nursing homes, look to the federal government. New York followed the president's agency's guidance. So that depoliticizes it. What New York did was follow what the Republican administration said to do. That's not my attempt to politicize it. It's my attempt to depoliticize it. So don't criticize the state for following the president's policy. 
The policy Cuomo is referring to is his March 25th executive order, which asks nursing homes to take in recovering COVID patients, even if those patients had not first been tested to see if they were clear of the virus. That executive order was based on federal guidelines released on March 13th, which advised that state nursing homes should accept COVID-19 positive patients if they could care for them. I just want to reiterate once again that the policy that the Department of Health put out was in line directly with the March 13th directive put out by CDC and CMS that read, and I quote, nursing homes should admit any individuals from hospitals where COVID is present. Not could, should. That is President Trump's CMS and CDC. It's been a national and international tragedy that everybody has had to grapple with, and it is something that we're trying to learn from every day and move forward. Just how many possibly ended up in nursing homes across the state? The Associated Press reports more than 4,500 recovering COVID patients were returned to nursing homes in the state following the governor's executive order. He's trying to get politics out of it by blaming the president's CDC. Is he right? Uh, No, that was a lie. This is what's so obscene about this dynamic. The number you mentioned, give people perspective, almost 6,000 people in nursing homes, twice the number of September 11th. And this guy issued an order that was the opposite, effectively, of what the CMS, part of the uh, federal government, issued regarding guidance for nursing homes. They specifically said that, in fact, if someone is very ill, they should be removed and put into a hospital. The dynamic where a nursing home could accept someone was if they're, and what they would want is that if they happen to be in a hospital where there was a COVID case, not that that person was the patient. Uh, and then at the same time, of course, at the same time when he issued his March 25th guidance, Cuomo, he, he also had the rule that visitors and family would not be allowed inside in the name of stopping the spread of the virus, and yet had an order where he prohibited uh, uh, nursing homes from being able to know if someone had the virus. Brian, he made it impossible. Right, here- you were not allowed to test or ask. So you died alone. Here's the March 13th directive. Here's the March 13th directive that you're referring to. Quote, a nursing can, a nurse can accept a resident diagnosis with COVID-19 as long as the facility, nursing home I should say, follows CDC guidance. If a nursing home cannot, it must wait until these precautions are discontinued. So if you can't isolate the patient, then you can't take the patient. It's not discrimination. Clearly they weren't able to isolate yes. because it went through, because these patients went through like an IED inside these uh, insular homes. And on top of that, Brian, when he issued his guidance, and then in April, he initiated an investigation into the nursing homes. And even when he reversed himself, finally on May 10th, after six weeks and thousands of deaths, he then again implied that it was the nursing home fault and that and that they were going to be under investigation. This was another reason. By the way, when he issued this order, it was effective immediately. It gave nursing homes no warning. They were did not have even the time to prepare if they thought they could. And they treated all nursing homes the same. So then they were under the burden, the nursing home owners, of, of thinking they were going to lose their license if they didn't do this. And the guidance said that you have no choice. You're not allowed to know. You're not allowed to test. Before we get to the obvious falsities in this line of reporting, and I did air quotes, this is what we always do. When Mr. Chocolate City 
had plenty of transportation to get people out, but they threw them in the fucking Superdome. They blamed George Bush. By the end of that incident for Katrina, George Bush made the storm. George Bush directed the storm. Spike Lee said George Bush went down personally, just like he did on 9-11, and blew up the dikes to kill black people. Whenever Democrats fail, it's the federal government. When they're in charge of the federal government, it's local government. Like when the Midwest, from us to Illinois to Ohio, had a terrible ice storm. People were without electricity for 10 days. Obama didn't go visit the area. There were white people. Fuck that. There was no federal outreach. The media didn't even talk about it. But they always talk about forest fires when they want to deflect on when Obama was embroiled in a faux scandal, as they called it. But this is clearly rewriting history, and it's what they always do. They always rewrite history. They never, ever come out and just be honest that, hey, there were mistakes made. You can still say Governor Cuomo is a great guy, and he's better than Trump, and he's such a good liberal ally, and say he fucked up on old folks' homes. He made a mistake. Nobody verified at these retirement homes could separate people and keep those infected away from those that were infected or even had the medical facilities to do it to begin with. It was just another, they didn't want them to come to their hospital because their thing is they watched contagion and we're going to get overrun and we don't have PPE and we don't have fucking, uh, fucking, those goddamn machines, my brain just locked. But yet we did. And we never got overrun. And we had plenty of ventilators. And we killed grandma. But that's the left. They project. Here's another good one. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham made everybody close. Because she's a Democrat. But she ordered a jewelry store to open up so she could get some jewelry. That's... Actually, from the AP, not from a conservative site. Yeah. And then we have this totally confusing. We're all going to die everywhere, but on MSNBC, they had to admit Georgia looked pretty good. We have seen great leaders, uh, FDR, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, Winston Churchill. We've all witnessed their... um, their physical decline, and we we witnessed their mental decline. We're witnessing this with Donald Trump as well, but we're also witnessing a spiritual decline. Uh, he this is a man who is um, degraded, uh, and he debases. He he talks about this ep- epidemic uh, as if it were to a war, and it is a war. But he's abandoned the field. It's a dereliction of duty. Everything we would do to fight. A war in the conventional sense, this president has decided to completely ignore. And we are paying for it with lives and treasure because of what we uh, have lacked in preparation, what we continue to do lack in preparation. There will be a second wave. We don't have to guess about this. And it is coming. And it won't be in blue America like in New York City or Baltimore or the other cities. They've already been hit hardest in the blue America. It will be in red America. It will be in rural America, in counties that many of us have never heard of. 
And the likelihood there is you will know someone who was affected. You will know someone who will have died. And we are giving the wrong information. Think how wrong Dr. Brooks's model was that she revised her models down to 60,000 dead. Well, today we will pass 100,000 dead, and it is only the beginning of the summer. And we must double down and rely on our governors, I guess, to prepare because red America, rural America, where Trump voters live, is going to be hit next, and it's going to get hit hard. When Georgia became one of the first states to reopen back in April, many said it was too much too soon, predicting a new surge in coronavirus cases. Now, exactly four weeks later, Blaine Alexander reports on whether Georgia's gamble paid off. At Tony's Barber Studio, the chairs are booked, the Clippers buzzing. Does it almost feel like a normal Saturday? Close. Yeah, it's close. When Tony reopened his doors a month ago, he had plenty of concerns. We were in dire straits, and we didn't know, you know, what else to do. Now? I feel good about it. Being able to go back and check with our clients, make sure two weeks later that they're doing good. Is it worth it to reopen financially? Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's worth it Um, for, for me and my barbers. We all have families to support. Last month, Georgia was one of the first states to reopen and with the most aggressive approach, allowing barbershops, restaurants, tattoo parlors, and more to welcome customers. The criticism came in droves. I told the governor very simply that I disagree with his decision, but he has to do what he thinks is right. One month later, here's what Georgia looks like today. These are new cases before and after the state's reopening. Looking at a three-day average, there is no steady trend up or down. So far, no major spike in cases, as some predicted. These are new hospitalizations before and after. No major changes. Same with new deaths, though the number has fluctuated. It's encouraging that we're not seeing a dramatic increase in hospitalizations. And overlaid on this, because we're going to come back to COVID with mobs and mass shame and You know, those things. The actual death rate is .004. It's a half a percentage. The CDC released that and the media completely or just ignored it. Official estimate a .4 fatality rate among those who are symptomatic and project a 35% rate of asymptomatic cases among those infected which drops the overall infection rate to 0.26. But they're relying that people are going to be stupid and not know that, well, they're counting everything as coronavirus. Everything. If you die from a car crash and you're corona-infected, you died of corona. And everybody knows that. Your secret's out. It's not anybody who's paying attention is not going to buy your bullshit, even though you keep shoveling it. So before I just lose my goddamn mind, let's play Memorial Day sound bites from our media, and then I'm going to lose my shit. And it show they were both wearing masks. They went to a war memorial in Newcastle, Delaware. Uh, This is also almost the fifth anniversary of their son, a veteran, Bo Biden's death. So these are are really uh, a touching war memorial visit. And the first time that he is coming out of his home, and I guess... 
testing whether he, there are other safe ways that he can emerge, uh, given his age, given the restrictions, and the fact that he is modeling what the government is saying to model, in contrast to the president, who's going against his own government. Yeah, and it's such a juxtaposition when you see how uh, Dr. Biden and uh, Joe Biden are handling this, ha- handling today compared to uh, the way Trump has operated this weekend. I mean, even by the standards we've come to accept um, or come to expect from Donald Trump, this is remarkably and catastrophically self-absorbed. You know? But I imagine if Joe Biden were president this weekend, if Barack Obama were president, I could, you know, as communications director, imagine the kind of weekend we would want to have prepared for America. Um, you know, you would want the president to lead the country in a televised event perhaps that's that's mourning uh, all of the loss that we've had do that throughout the weekend leave monday to honor veterans and the president arguably is endangering the the troops the 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 people who have to travel with him as well as the people that he meets along the way and he has not been socially distancing or wearing a mask when he's around them so um obviously time will Joining us now is CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. John, great to see you. There are a few interesting things about the president choosing to play golf yesterday. And one is that over the past week, he's been very interested in churches. He's been very interested in churches reopening. He's encouraged them to do so, even against the advice of medical experts. But then yesterday, he didn't go to church. He played golf. So how do we process that? Well, it's just more of the do as I say, not as I do presidency. But I think it shows how he'd use his, uh, he's willing to use religion as a political weapon, but not, uh, walk the walk. Um, and that's because he's never particularly been a person of faith, even though he's very popular among evangelicals. An argument, I think, is both a polit- you can argue the politics of it, but then there's the principle of it. And at some point, Democrats, even if the, even if the politics of this is problematic for Democrats, and you can't change Republicans' minds on this, which is right now you can't, there is a principle argument to be made. Civil rights, the American public did not support. The leaders in the, in the American public were off base in, on civil rights. On gay rights, the leaders were off base where, where the American public was. I think at some point in time, you have to put the politics to the side and what is the principled argument that you want to do regarding the president's impeachment. It's Memorial Weekend, right? It's Memorial Weekend. Tomorrow's Memorial Day. And I'm struck by the president in this. There's a great song by, a country song by Justin Moore called The Ones That Didn't Make It Home. And if you really want to honor the ones that didn't make it home and this president and watching this president this past week, do you really honor the ones that didn't make it home by considering pardoning people that are convicted, that are, might be convicted of war crimes? Do you really honor the ones that didn't make it home by the troop assignment in Iran after the, we watched the folly in Iraq, the folly in Afghanistan, and we didn't learn the lesson of the Vietnam War? It took us 30 years to finally learn the lesson of the Vietnam War. We haven't learned it in 30 days. And do we really honor the ones that didn't make it home by banning transgender troops, from banning transgender people from being in the military? And so, to me, when I look at this, and the pre- this, this race in 2020, going back to it, is not going to be about whether our economic situation with is with China and what's the GDP numbers and employment is. It's going to be about who we are. And on this Memorial Weekend, I think it's an important question to ask that, is who we are and how do we honor those people that didn't make it. today and observing a Memorial Day that will be happening tomorrow. I just talked with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Burke, who was a casualty officer with the Marines and had to tell people. And um, I, 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 Back, sorry. Um, I think 
it's interesting because it is, I think, very difficult to talk about the war dead and the fallen without invoking valor, without invoking the words heroes. Um, and why do I feel so comfortable about the word hero? I feel comfortable, uncomfortable about the word hero because it seems to me that it is so rhetorically proximate to justifications for more war. Um, and I don't want to obviously desecrate or disrespect the memory of anyone that's, that's fallen. And obviously there are individual circumstances in which there is genuine and tremendous heroism of, you know, hail of gunfire and rescuing fellow soldiers and things like that. But it seems to me that we, we marshal this word in a way that um, is problematic. But maybe I'm wrong about that. No. Mike Barnacle, um, before you take it to uh, a next panelist, I just want to ask you what your reflections are during this time uh, in terms of our attitudes in America, our knowledge and our understanding of people who serve in the military, who serve multiple tours of duty, um, who have taken part in wars on behalf of this country, and also are being deployed by this president by, let's say, maybe perhaps controversial uh, means in terms of their deployments at the southern border for caravans that are coming in. It's a convoluting time, is it not? Mika, because of my age, my background, my family history, yeah. there's a certain sadness with me about Memorial Day. Because you think of the word memorial, and part of that word incorporates memory. And with all the tools we have today, with Snapchat and Twitter and our smartphones, they're incredible instruments, but they've caused a loss of memory in America. Mm. Memory about who we are and who we've been. Memorial Day used to be May 30th. And Memorial Day used to be a time that was not just the start of summer, it was a time when nearly everyone remembered the fallen because nearly everyone in this country had been touched by the fallen on the street where they lived, in the parish where they belonged, in the clubs that they joined, in just the people they knew. They had either lost a member of their own family or certainly knew someone on the block who had been lost, multiple members of, the, of people on the block. That's gone. We now live in a 1% world where less than 1% of people serve in our military and the impact on them and their families is pretty much off to the sidelines. That's the sadness. And Paul Rykoff, um, I, I'd love for you to reflect on what Mike Barnacle just said and also uh, given um, the work that you have done how you're feeling about uh, the way the military perhaps is being used by this presidency, does it really match their role in history? I think sadly that's right, Mika, but I think as a starting point, Memorial Day still can be a time where we come together as a nation in this time when we're so divided. Even if you just take Say, one minute you. on the moment of silence that's observed at 3 o'clock local time everywhere in America, just take one minute and reflect on someone that you know that has died, or even if you don't know someone who's died, someone that has died on your behalf to giving you the opportunity to go have a barbecue or go to the beach, or even if you're at work, just take one minute to kind of reflect on what this means. And I think it's actually an opportunity for us to reinforce 
reinvigorate what patriotism means. There's an inspiring generation that served overseas. We take inspiration from the ones that came before us. And I think that can be kind of a, a silver lining in this sadness, even looking at the fact that three post-9-11 veterans are now running for president. Uh, no matter what yep. party you come from, I think that can be a sign of inspiration. But we've also got to remember that we are profoundly disconnected. Most of America is going to the beach or, or going to work, and our troops are either overseas or they're remembering their friends at a cemetery. So it's a time of really deep disconnect. And it's also a time of forever war, where there's no real political or social accountability. People keep going over and over again. And because of the authorization of the use of military force, we basically can go to war forever with a blank check in any country the president wants. So I think we have to you know, put it in timely context and know that right now we're on potentially a, a new war with Iran. I mean, Andrea Mitchell whinging about him endangering people and what Joe Biden did. Don't worry, we're going to hit all those. We're going to hit every one of these subjects. The churches, golfing. I played it up front because simultaneously, while they're on the air trying to say Trump doesn't care about troops and isn't respecting the troops, Ted Cruz brings to light an op-ed that nobody would have reported on. But it came out. The New York Times has time and time again reminded us why they are the king of repugnant when it comes to useless op-eds written so progressive waste of space can pat themselves on the back for fighting racism. Their latest dumpster of awful is a piece they released over Memorial Day weekend accusing the U.S. military of celebrating white supremacy. Ted Cruz, of course, slammed them far better than we can from the New York Times. Military installations that celebrate white supremacy traitors have loomed steadily larger in civic landscapes since the country began closing smaller bases and consolidating its forces on larger ones. Bases named for men who sought to destroy the Union in the name of racial injustice are an insult to the ideals servicemen and women are sworn to uphold. I'm going to read the op-ed. Ted Cruz, on this Memorial Day... We give thanks to the heroic men and women who fought bravely and gave their lives to protect the New York Times' right to call the military Klansmen. When I read the piece, that's basically what they're saying. Ian McKelvey, fuck you, New York Times. You published this garbage during Memorial Day weekend. You people are the lowest form of scum on earth, and you wonder why you're hated. Clayton Macy, I served 16 years, four deployments, and you're right. They have the right to say it. But shouldn't something in their brains tell them that something keeping their opinion in themselves is a better option? They made a clan bullet. That was the picture they put out. May 23rd, 2020. Why does the U.S. military celebrate white supremacy? It is time to rename bases for American heroes, not racist traitors. The white supremacists who murdered nine black churchgoers, right there. Dylan Roof, one guy. We still cling to that one whack job. And that represents all white people in the United States. They go on to talk about the Confederate flag, which Nikki Haley took down. We'll get to that, too. The National Cathedral in Washington showed how pervasive the incography, incography, which I don't know what that word means, but whatever, had become when it dismantled an elaborate set of stained glass windows depicting the Confederate General Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in saintly poses. 
As the cathedral dean put it, there was no excuse for the nation's most visible church to celebrate a cause whose primary reason was being to preserve preservation and extension of slavery in America. There's so many historians that say that's not it. That's more than that. It, it's where we're at now in our country, a certain part of the country trying to tell other people how to live, and they got sick of it. Yeah, they wanted to keep their slaves, but it was more than just slavery. It became slavery when he emancipated the slaves. But even the guy who wanted to get rid of slavery, that wasn't his purpose when he started the war. They succeeded. He forcibly made them come back. Institutions that could once have wrapped themselves in Confederacy ideology without consequences were put on notice. The public sentiment had shifted. No, it hadn't, but the left and the media made it so. So we went on a let's take down every statue campaign. The Commandant of the United States Marine Corps tactfully deferred to his new reality last month by banning public display of Confederate flags and marine installation. General David H. Berger pointed out in a letter to his fellow Marines that the flag had been pushed out because of the power to inflame feelings of division and a military organization that relies on unity to do its work. The Commandant avoided references to racism and white supremacy, suggesting that it would still justifiable for people of goodwill to view the Confederate banner as a harmless expression of national pride. I could pull out my African-American captain who argued with me back in South Carolina that it was that, but we never get opposing views in our media. Nevertheless, innocent intentions cannot obscure the truth that secessionists embarked on a civil war to guarantee the right of some human beings to own others, or the fact that Confederate banner represents the same white supremacist values as and is often displayed in tandem with the Nazi swastika. Mm-hmm. Gotta get Nazi in there. The same toxic legacy clings to the 10 United States military installations across the South that were named for Confederate Army officers during the first half of the 20th century. Apologists often describe the names as necessary gestures of reconciliation in the wake of Civil War. In truth, the naming reflects a federal embrace of white supremacy that found it most poisonous expression in military installations where black servicemen were deliberately placed under the command of white Southerners, who were said to better understand Negroes to confine to substandard housing, (coughs) segregated transportation systems, and even colored-only seating in movie houses. As the official Defense Department history of this period now acknowledges, the federal embrace of the Jim Crow system undermined the country's readiness for a war and destroyed morale, introducing black recruits to a brand of hardcore racism many had not experienced in civilian life. Of course, they don't say that Democrats made Jim Crow. That was the Democrat Party. As the military opened more and more such bases across the country, the history notes it actually spread federally sponsored segregation into areas where it had never been existed with the force of law. In other words, the base names were part of the broad federal sellout to white supremacy that poisoned the whole of the United States. Celebrating a war criminal. The officials who named a military base in Virginia for profoundly dishonorable General General George Pickett must have been willfully blind to the voluminous record demonstrating his unworthiness. In addition to being accused of cowardice in the pivotal battle at Gettysburg, the incompetent, self-regarded picket faced war crime investigation for the execution of 22 Union soldiers in Kitson, North Carolina, near the end of the war. <clears throat> you had to dig deep to find this. You really had to dig deep to find this. Most people don't know this, nor the people that probably named it, but... You go on with your all-white-people-are-racist self. 
When a union general reminded Pickett that federal policy mandated retaliation for extragal killing of Union soldiers, the Confederate general responded by crowing about the killing and threatening to hang 10 U.S. Army prisoners for every Confederate prisoner who might be marched to the gallows. A military panel investigated the Kingston killing, wrote unsparingly of Pickett's comment, it is opinion of the board and these men had violated the rules of war and every principle of humanity and are guilty of crimes too heinous to be excused by the government of the United States. Pickett fled to Canada. I'm not continuing on. I'm just not going to continue on. We'll get down here. Um, by the time the federal government sought out military training facilities in the South in preparation for war abroad, the school of mythology known as the Lost Cause Movement forged groups like the United Daughters of the Confederacy and rewritten Civil War history. The telling valorized the Ku Klux Klan, created by the left, cast even the most ex- Absorable Confederate officers, saints, and portrayed slavery as an ideal featuring loving masters who doted on happy black retainers. The Lost Cause era also ushered in the reign of racial terror during the African Americans were stripped of basic rights and murdered in public for reasons such as competing, competing with white businesses, seeking to vote, or even failing to give away on the sidewalk. Adolf Hitler himself took notice, praising the United States as the near epitome of a racist state. The Nazi movement normalizes the agenda in Germany by pointing out that racist policies and practices have been successfully applied in the South United States. Once again, nothing about Democrats. The federal government embraced pillars of white supremacy premises movement when it named military bases in the South. Consider, for example, Fort Benning, Georgia, which honors a Confederate general, Henry Louis Benning, he devoted himself to the premise that African Americans are not really human and can never be trusted with full citizenship. Benning was widely influential in Southern politics and served on the Supreme Court of Georgia before turning his attention to the cause of secession. In a now famous speech, he said a bunch of shit back in 1861. So Fort Benning's bad. By naming yet another Georgia base for Confederate general, John Brown Gordon, the federal government, venerated a man who was a leader of the Georgia Ku Klux Klan after Civil War. And who may have taken on a broader role in a terrorist organization when her first national leader, former Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest, suffered declining health. As a politician, Gordon championed the late 19th century campaign that stripped African-American Southerners of the citizenship rights they had briefly held during the Civil War as Reconstruction. A deal with white supremacy is the headline now. The Charleston dead were scarcely cold when an Army spokesman declared there were no need to expunge Confederate base names because the names were merely historic and represent individuals, not causes or ideologies. The first problem with this argument is that as individuals, these men were traitors. These rebel officers, who were willing to destroy the United States keep black people in chains, are synonymous with race ideology that drove them to treason. The second difficulty is that base names were agreed upon as part of a broader accommodation in which the military embraced stringent segregation so as not to offend Southerners by treating African Americans as equal. The name represents not only oppression before and during the Civil War, but also state-sponsored bigotry after it. Understand the overriding tone of this article is what liberals think of the South still. And they still live in the Civil War, which was a fucking long time ago. But in their minds, 
we are all evil people that shouldn't be part of America. Be it our gun ownership, our Christianity, whatevs. You're in the South. You're a piece of shit. Black recruits who volunteered to die for their country were mainly shut out of combat units commanded by white Southern. This is World War II. We're, we're, I'm not even going to read this shit. The racist convention applied on Southern military bases were exported to bases in the North and West as well. When commanders sought to police the leisure time conduct of black soldiers, those conventions spilled over in surrounding towns that had never known Jim Crow. At the height of World War II, for example, Southern white officers at base not far from Philadelphia reacted in vintage Deep South style when they saw black soldiers dating white women. One officer decreed any association between colored soldiers and white women, whether voluntary or not, would be considered rape. I'm moving on. Fifteen years later, a young African-American officer named Colin Powell marveled at the contrast between the fairness and opportunity he experienced in Fort Benning, Georgia, and the racist treatment he suffered off-base and refused to serve him. In his memoir, My American Journey, Mr. Powell described the racially integrated bases of the segregated 60s-era South as healthy cells and otherwise sick body. Nevertheless, for the first half of the 20th century, the U.S. military contributed mightily to the very sickness Mr. Powell condemns. Military installations to celebrate white supremacist traitors have loomed steadily large in the civic landscape since the country began closing smaller bases. Blah, 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 we read it. The women to uphold and an embarrassing artifact of the time when the military itself embraced anti-American values. It is long past time for those bases to be renamed. The Times is committed to publishing a diversity of letters to the editor. We'd like to hear what you think about this or any of our articles. Here are some replies. More than 1.1 million Americans have made the ultimate sacrifice, yet the Times decided not to share their stories this Memorial Day. Instead, the paper decided to do a disgusting fake news hit piece on our nation's military. Another reply. This is how the New York Times chooses to spend Memorial Day, attacking and smearing one of our country's greatest institutions, the U.S. military. Our men and women in uniform have fought and bled and died so that millions of people across the world can live free. Should we be surprised? No. This is this is the New York Times. The New York Times hates soldiers. It always has. It's nothing new. I mean, seriously, what is new about this? This is what they've always done. They... Let's just do a few here. Hold on a second. Let me up open up my bookmark manager. I watched Vietnam in HD. And you know, I I was really surprised because they literally covered what soldiers were treated like. And I decided to look up some articles because I thought I'd do a section one day. And being that, you know, it's Google, I had a hard time finding stuff. Here's an opinion from the New York Times in 2017. The myth of spitting anti-war protesters. So where did these stories come from? The reporter was asked about accounts by soldiers returning from Vietnam had been spat on by anti-war activists. 
a pretty common thing, dog shit. There's plenty of documentation. I had told her the stories were not true. I told her that, on the contrary, opponents of the war had actually tried to recruit returning vets. I told her about the 71 Harris Poll survey that found that 99% of veterans said their reception for friends and family had been friendly, and 94% said the reception of age group of peer, peers, the population most likely to include the spitters, were friendly. A follow-up poll conducted in 1979 for the Veterans Administration reported that former anti-war activists had warmer feelings toward Vietnam veterans than toward congressional leaders. I was glad the reporter was interested in the origins of these stories because beginning even before the war ended, news organizations had too awfully simply repeated them, even though some stories are the hallmark of tall tales. Google also brought me Star Tribune. Disrespect for Vietnam vets is fact, not fiction. And they talk probably the same guys that were on the TV. Common Dreams, a liberal, the bringing news and views for the progressive community. Vietnam War protesters, this is from September 27, 2017. Vietnam War protesters have nothing to apologize for. The nation of all places. Regrets of a former anti-war protester. As the Trump administration rattles a saber at Tehran, author James Carroll recounts an abandoned plot to protest the Vietnam War. First thing the New York Times brings out, because it resurfaced, was it's all lie. But yet, anybody you talk to from Vietnam tells you when they came back to San Francisco or these areas, they were treated like shit. Totally treated like shit. So why would we be surprised the New York Times on this day would run this? That's what they think. Right now, prevailing in our liberal media is that we're all Anybody who fought in these wars is just a mercenary. That we all rape women, because rape is so prevalent. And we're all white supremacists. You don't hear stories about the sacrifice families have made. You don't hear stories about guys who've done like nine fucking tours. You don't hear stories about the suicides. 22 a day. Now they're saying 18 a day. They're not going to cover that in the New York Times. Why would they? It's a demographic that doesn't vote Dem. They fight wars that they don't agree with unless there's a D behind the person's name that started it, which, hate to bust your bubble, it was D's that prosecuted the Vietnam War until Nixon ended it. But history and facts, we don't do it. And then they try to pass off Biden as a great guy. Julian Castro, comms guy, contrasts Biden's visit at War Memorial with President Trump's golfing. Sire Hackett, here are how the two nominees spent the Memorial Day weekend. And they show Trump golfing and him at a War Memorial. Benny, actually President Trump visited Arlington National Cemetery in Fort McHenry today. 
Julio Rosas, discussing that you use a Memorial Day where we should be spending the day honoring our fallen heroes to push a fake narrative that Trump didn't honor our troops, all to score retweets instead of acknowledge that he spent time at Arlington. Another. And notice how Sawyer Hackett is trying to weasel his words by including weekend. Yes, Trump golfed the other day. But it's deliberately misleading to compare that Biden did today versus what Trump did the other day. It pisses me off people can't put aside their petty political bullshit for one day, like today. Even worse, when they're using days like Memorial Day to score cheap political points by spreading false narratives. There's a lot of sick, sick Americans that want this country to burn if it means they gain more political power. So true. Joe Biden, after two months in the basement, comes out for a photo op wearing black masks, which actually stand out to make his point, then he heads back to his basement to stay there till November. Then we use the virus as an excuse not to debate. Another, with Biden saluting the memorial as though he's commander-in-chief. Delusional. That's, that's our media. That's how they address everything. If Trump did it, it would be a photo op. And the only time they care about deaths is when they use deaths to make Vietnam comparisons or to blame Trump. So as we go to our first break, this was actually a question by a reporter. I don't think he used the Vietnam comparison. But this morning on the Today Show, they did. To get in comparison, 58,000 people died in Vietnam. That's the only time they talk about deaths from Vietnam. Nobody talks about deaths from the current wars. Nobody. Because why would they? It doesn't matter. They don't care that those fucking mercenaries are dying. They're liberals. So here's our quick break, and then we're going to come back into Vox and their Memorial Day take. Resistors need to be mourned, too. Dead American milestone. What would, what does the White House view as having, by Election Day, what does the White House view as the number of dead Americans um, where you can say that you successfully defeated this pandemic? Is there a number? Yeah, you know, every loss of life counts. We say 100,000, but like the president says, you know, one death is something to be mourned. Um, these 100,000 individuals have a face. The president takes this very seriously. It's why he lowered um, the flag to half staff for three days to remember these men and women. Um, I think, you know, Dr. Burks um, said it best when she said that um, in their estimates, they had anywhere between 1.5 and 2.2 million people in the U.S. succumbing to the virus if we didn't shut down the economy. The president made the very hard choice of shutting down the economy so we avoided that extraordinary number. Um, every One death is too many. We never want to see a single individual lose their life um, but that being said, to be under significantly that high mark um, shows that the president did everything in his power and helped to make this number as low as humanly possible. When voters go to the polls in November and they want to judge the president on his response to this pandemic, what is the number of dead Americans that they should 
tolerate as ha- and where they can argue that yes, he successfully defeated the pandemic. I think um, you know you're asking the wrong question. The right question is where did where did That's the data? Where did when I and I answered your question once, but if you ask it twice, it doesn't make it any better of a question. So I'll respond in kind. I've given you one answer. I'll continue to extrapolate upon that. That he always listened to the science. The president, when Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burke said you need to shut down the economy, that was hard for the president. You know, in a typical year, 120,000 people die of suicide and drug overdose. It's in a typical year. And doctors have said uh, when you shut down an economy for an extended period of time, that number gets greater. People don't show up for their cancer diagnoses. Uh, there are a litany of, of results when you close down an economy, but closing down the economy for this amount of time kept us far below the 2.2 million number. As we start to reopen, we keep in mind the people who are missing their screening appointments, the people um, who are not who are succumbing to suicide and drug overdose because of economic hardship. This president made the right choice. Uh, it was a delicate balance, and he did it exactly as he should, guided by data. And we are far below 2.2 million dead Americans because of the actions of President Trump. You mean?
to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reed. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. Move aside and let the man go through. Let the man go through. So Vox sees New York Times and they go, hold my fucking beer. We ought to also set aside time to remember those throughout American history who have tried hardest to reduce war, to prevent unnecessary loss of life, both American and foreign. War resistors. Memorial Day and Veterans Day often get equated, but there's an essential distinction between the two. Veteran Day honors all who have served the American military in war. Memorial Day honors those who perished. It's an annual reminder that the wars of grave human contact cost, which must be both recognized and minimized. Those costs are not inevitable. We ought to set aside time to remember those throughout history, blah, 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 blah. World resistors can be heroes. American history is littered with examples of pointless wars fought for bad reasons and with people who risk their career and their freedom to oppose them. The Mexican-American War. Yeah, we're just yeah, we have to come back. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, we, we gotta go way back then. That that's bad, I guess. Czar in Russia, World War One. Uh, Jesus Christ, World War Two. Supporting World War Two was correct, but it was also easy. Um, da, 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 but insofar as organized anti-war movement did contribute to public opinion in those cases that it saved lives and demand recognition. In those cases where war opponents failed to deserve remembrance as a reminder that mayhem of a pointless war is inevitable, that at least some president of the time are fighting to stop it. Some countries honor their war resistors. These countries have started to recognize this and honor their war resistors accordingly. Memorial in Scotland, England, uh, Australian deserters of World War II. Uh, may has a monument to the unknown deserters of both world wars. Merely decide, okay, then it goes Western, uh, the U.S. is a long way from accepting Sam Memorial for those who deserted the military or dodged the draft or in Vietnam. Merely deciding to spare them prosecution was controversial, controversial enough, and their counterparts from Iraq and Afghanistan still face the possibility of jail time for refusing to kill. That's a total fallacy. You can be a conscientious objector. There's a whole Vietnam movie about a conscientious objector who became a warrior and got the Medal of Honor. I think it's called Hacksaw Ridge. I think it's about Vietnam. Never watched it. Even the more modest step of honoring those who tried to stop war through peaceful means or organized protests, tax evasion, or other forms of civil disobedience likely be a tall order. The Vietnam War Memorial faced tremendous opposition upon its unveiling for not being an uncritical celebration of the conflict. But some wars aren't worth fighting. Some causes aren't worth sacrificing American lives for. Those who fought to remind the government of those basic facts deserve our respect and our thanks. Fuck those soldiers. Honor those that are cowardice bitches. My biological father, who's dead, he's a cowardice bitch. He left, he left during Vietnam. He didn't re-enlist. He left during a war and said, fuck it. Yeah, I left during a war, but I fought and then I retired. Big difference. He ran because he was a pussy. I made sure he knew that. 
and what I felt of him, because he's a horrible person. So don't think I'm this bad guy. He told us to get on with our lives and ignored us, because he started a new family. His wife divorced him, and he took it out on the kids. And subsequently didn't love his new kids, which he had five of them. But he was a pussy. I'm not honoring pussies. You could have gone and worked in the supply corps. You could have worked in, you could have worked in a hospital and saved lives. That's what you could have done. But you were pussy and you ran. I look at Vietnam and I see pussies and I see people who just said, well, fuck it. And the funny thing is, it also destroyed in this HD. It's, it's, um, I think it's on History Channel. Vietnam and HD. They talk about the draft. And I'm always told it was only black people that got drafted disproportionately. Yet when they start talking about the uptick in around 66, 67, it was all white areas, rural. They paid the most, not urban. So that was kind of interesting. Jake Tapper, op-ed. We've learned to thank those who serve, whether it's in war or during a pandemic. His article pushing, we should just honor first responders. This is a motherfucker that wrote a book about soldiers. But even on Memorial Day, he had a shit on it. And I understand, I'm not being the one of those stupid idiots. Memorial Day is about everybody who's fallen. But usually it is the military. But now, there was nothing in our media about all the people that have died. I think it's 6,900 let, let me make sure that I'm not a, a dumbass. Let, let me look it up. I still had to go to eye casualties, which I don't think is accurate. I think they count people that died post, because their number is 8472. Last one I saw was 69, almost 7,000. But we're not going to run a front page spread on the New York Times. I'm not going to do that. Hillary Clinton. I'm missing our Chappaqua Memorial Day parade today while also feeling grateful for leaders like Cuomo. Yeah, I couldn't go out of my house. Fuck the soldiers. But she hates soldiers. Politico Playbook compares Trump Memorial Day tweets to patriotic newspapers. And in this, they literally dog him for doing patriotic stuff. We can never replace them, we can never repay them, but we can always remember Memorial Day 2020. And that's bad. It's just bad. Yeah. It's patriotic newspaper. Why would we do this? Why would we, why would we want the President of the United States to be patriotic? Oh, it's because you, like Obama, he hated soldiers. You guys played like he liked them. And you always carried his ball where he walked in, did a dance, and fucking got the fuck out of there. Because as a community organizer, vets are not a demo we can... Why waste time on them? They're fucktards. Yeah. that That's that's our fucking Memorial Day. Doesn't surprise me. Just doesn't surprise me. This is what it's always been. We are the 0.3% who fought. 0.3%. 
We're not a demo anybody cares about. So why would I expect it? So we're going to start uh, our next... Well, here's a John King. Uh, l- listen to this fucking dickweed. Of the United States speaking this Memorial Day at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, the birthplace of the Star-Spangled Banner. You see the president there enjoying some of the ceremonies after his remarks there, uh, very solemn remarks from the president, paying tribute uh, to fallen and their families, also touching on the coronavirus threat, saying we're in a new form of battle against an invisible enemy. Uh, the president sticking to the teleprompter there can seem a bit of a parallel universe. If you watch the president at these official events and then take a look at his Twitter feed, you see two very different tones. Uh, this one here, solemn, fitting. Uh, the other one, I'll just say, not so much, full of hate and spite and grievances. Uh, also, just moments ago on this Memorial Day, the former vice president and the current presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, you see him here with his wife, Jill Biden, laying a wreath. This is at the Delaware Memorial Bridge Veterans Memorial Park. Let's just listen for a moment. CNN's Arlette Sines joins us now. And Arlette, on this Memorial Day, uh, the former vice president uh, at home, uh, paying tribute to the fallen, as is appropriate. Uh, It is also worth noting we have not seen him out in public in quite some time. Yeah, that's right, John. This is Joe Biden's first public appearance since March 12th when he gave a speech relating to the coronavirus right here in Wilmington, Delaware. And you saw the former vice president and his wife, Jill Biden, laying that wreath at that memorial for those who served and died during World War II and the Korean War. And you saw the precautions they took. They were wearing those face masks. Biden has talked about uh, while he's been at home that he's been wearing face masks and gloves around Secret Service or other aides who have maybe come into his home. But now Now, in his first public appearance, we are seeing that he is following through with that protocol as well. Now, both the Bidens uh, have a strong tie to military families. Uh, Jill Biden, while she was second lady, worked a lot extensively with military families and children. And also their own son, Bo Biden, served in Iraq as part of the Delaware uh, Army National Guard. The anniversary, the five-year anniversary of his passing from brain cancer is later this week. So the Bidens today making their first public appearance since the coronavirus pandemic really put uh, the country and the nation at a standstill. Biden, this is the first time that we've seen Biden out in public since March 12th. John. Hate and spite and grievances. Can a Fox host ever say that about a Baba? Bitter clingers is hate? No. I don't think he could. So... With the media going cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs over anything that they could find, you know, like monkeys throwing poo at a wall, the mass shame, well, Eric Spencer sums it up. Not the Eric Spencer who's the white supremacist, a guy I follow on, I think he's actually a gay guy, on um, Twitter. Carry everywhere. This shit is only going to escalate. Macaulay Holmes, Staten Islanders with masks drive out non-mask wearing person in grocery store. It wasn't once. It was two different incidents where civilians harassed other civilians. I'm not harassing you. 
to this craziness. These fucking morons think masks are magic. Bunch of imbeciles gather closely defeating that little benefit the cloth mask may provide and reduce the amount of virus they're putting in the air. They demand everyone wear one, but they don't understand how they work. The Staten Island mask Nazis. People start flipping it on them. The people with the mask are simultaneously the villains and the victims of this story. They're the villains and they are not trying to shame but attack and demean with derogatory language they are also victims because they have been scared into believing this helps unless it's an N95 mask you're not slowing the spread of anything another person remember the very last scene of invasion of the body snatcher it was very similar to this another be the bigger bully that's our society now be the bigger bully. That's what we do. If a business has the right to not sell you groceries for not wearing a mask, then a business has a right to not sell you a cake. Isn't that the fucking truth? It's so true. It's just so fucking true, man. They just crack me the fuck up. But that's our media. Here's the media about the Ozarks. We'll see. Harris, over to you. 
Well, there are growing concerns now over more Americans breaking from social distancing as the United States is grappling still with the coronavirus outbreak. Beaches from California, your home state, Leslie Marshall, to Florida were packed over this holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend, tourists flocking to some hot spots. And take a look at Missouri's Lake of the Ozarks. Beautiful area down there. Of course, you can't see the ground because there's so many people. That's a pool party. And those people are defying warnings about preventing the spread of COVID-19. Now the Kansas City Health Director is calling for those people to self-quarantine who were at this gathering. St. Louis County officials issued a travel advisory warning, quote, this reckless behavior endangers countless people and risks setting us back substantially from the progress we have made in slowing the spread of COVID-19. Uh, end of quote there. You know, Brian, we want to open up. We want to do all those things that, that bring us back in a substantive way. But personal responsibility should be stamped on some people's foreheads. Harris, so true. And and what I see that what happened in the Ozarks, when I see what's happening in other places like that, the video you just showed, it ruins it for everyone. It destroys my argument that we are acting responsibly as a country when I see that video. I'm saying to myself, how am I going to go out and trumpet the responsibility of the American people to go ahead and stand up our economy when I see that? But at the same time, I travel Long Island beaches personally. I couldn't believe how responsible people were. I saw people sitting on the beach yeah. with masks on six feet away. So the Ozarks, for one thing, I guarantee you no one in the Ozarks is self-quarantining. Uh, that is pretty much, if you're going to sit there in a pool right next to somebody, I don't know how enjoyable that is to begin with, but to do that, I'm sure yeah. they're not self-quarantining <laughs> for 14 days. They're not, they're, not getting, they're not getting the message. But for the most part, the only thing my message from the beginning of this to now is, that's irresponsible, but at the same time, telling small business people that you cannot open up your restaurant or gym because we don't think you're responsible enough to do it, that is also wrong. Because the consumers will decide to go to the gym or to go to the restaurant. That's all our decisions. Right now, you're not letting us make those decisions. That's an example of a poor decision. But I think mostly the American people got the message. Uh, lesson learned for the most part, except for in those examples. Yeah. We have a lot of that video, not just from Osage Beach and, and those areas, but, I mean, Florida as well. I just want to point out, the Ozarks are gorgeous. I don't know if you guys have been down there for a little country music. It's awfully nice. It's not across the board. But there were a lot of people at that pool party. Uh, Katie, what do you preach to these people? How, how do you say, if you want your jobs, if you want this economy back, if you want those 39 million people out of work not to have to continue to file for government dole, what do you say to them? I think everything that you can say that to them has been said, Harris, whether it's from the federal government, local health officials. The fact is that not everybody is going to do everything that they are told, but we should not brush everybody in America with the same kind of uh, irresponsibility exactly. as maybe some people who go to this, you know, to this place. And I wouldn't be going to that pool party even if there wasn't COVID-19 because it's just not my scene. So, you know, there are going to be people <laughs> who don't listen and you can't punish the rest of the country for the actions of a a few irresponsible people and the beauty is that well not the beauty but you know if they're if they they will they will have consequences for their actions one way or another so uh, in yeah. florida the beaches have been open for a long time because the cases have been lower there you know people have been overwhelmingly mm -hmm. responsible for their behavior so you know you can't paint the actions of a few people in the ozarks uh on top of the rest of the country and their behavior and you know we've told they've heard everything that you can tell them 
um, and they're going to do what they want. So that's where they are. Yeah. Because people are in the Lake of the Ozark dancing, S.E. cupped, literally shaking. Oh, my God, Stephen Miller. No one, and I mean no one collecting a paycheck from CNN gets to pull the feigning outrage act of people going outside anymore until they call this shit out. And they showed Frito. And Frito with his brother. Americans doing what freedom-loving Americans should be doing. And then the world showing Governor Northam, Coon Man, on a beach with a bunch of black people. Pictures of people in San Francisco, New York, everywhere. But it doesn't fit the narrative. The narrative is it's just southern states because of Trump and Fox News. They've been trying to make that fit, and they can't make it fit, so they just keep doing it. They didn't even cover this lady who wore a mask bikini. She's not super hot, so it's not as good as it could be. I mean, that's chauvinist. I don't give a fuck. It'd be like somebody saying that my fat ass out there in a Speedo, that could have been hotter. Rito Moreno, shoeshine girl. Nemo baby, can people just wear the damn mask instead of making it a sad performance art? This lady went out because she got kicked out of a Trader Joe's for not wearing a mask, and she protested in a mask bikini over her gooch and her boobies. She's completely naked. That was her protest. Dolores Park in San Francisco Memorial Day. More people than were in the Ozark video. Nobody cares. Because people like Frito, we gotta, we gotta deflect off our goddamn brother. Do me two favors. One, let's keep it out of the weeds because this data stuff gets dense really fast. And let's name no names because I have not had the chance to get responses from all the different players. All right? So to be fair. Understood. Okay. So the simple question is, what exactly were you asked to do that was so in unusual and improper and, in your opinion, wrong? Well, the first time I was asked to do something improper was in April. And when I brought basically what the results of whether or not each county could open to superiors, they essentially told me they did not like the results. How so? What does that mean they didn't like? Help us understand. The results didn't match the report for reopening that had already been written, uh, basically saying that a lot of rural counties, because of a, a wide range of reasons, didn't meet the criteria that the state had outlined in order to qualify for reopening, whereas some more populated counties did meet that criteria. And I was told that Specifically, and this is a quote, we can't tell Jackson and Franklin County that they can't reopen, but Broward and Miami-Dade can. Okay. And let's stop there for a second, Rebecca, just so we give it to people in chunks, okay? Um, Okay. All right. So what they say is, no, 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 no. This was just about dates and different ways of organizing data. We do this all the time. It wasn't about hiding anything because uh, everything came out. And in fact, it's still available now. So if the data is available, we never wanted it deleted or hidden. So we did nothing improper. Why are they wrong? They're lying because asking me to delete data and hide information and make it publicly inaccessible was a bad decision. 
It was a wrong decision that I stated very clearly in several email communications that I still have. I did not agree with. I actually referred to it as being the wrong call. We had really built our reputation in Florida and made my dashboard famous across the whole country and even the world because we were transparent and we were honest about what our data was and what it meant. If there was an issue with the data integrity, they would have never put it back. But they did as soon as they started to get calls saying, why is it the same day that the press asked you about this information? Do you decide to delete it and pull all the information down from the website? So wait, so they're and making the opposite report. argument, just to make it clear. They're saying we never deleted it. So that's how we were able to put it back. That's why it's still there. They disagree with you with why it was put back. Uh, they say it wasn't because the media was asking. They were just organizing the data differently, and they have a 100 very deep reasons that I don't get, uh, and neither will anybody else. But they say it was never deleted, so we never asked you to delete it, or you just decided not to delete it because it was never deleted, so we're okay. It was absolutely deleted, and, and it's public record that it was deleted. The data did go down. It broke all of the links um, across our Department of Emergency Management website, our own Department of Health website, as soon as it went down. I have the email records ordering me to take it down. Um, as I said, I replied, this is the wrong call, and then immediately prior after that, that it was down, and that was it. About an hour later, I was told to put some of the data back, but not all of it. And the next day, I was told to return all of the data in the exact same form that it had been published the day before that and for weeks before that period of time. So when you say deleted, it was something you were still able to recall. And that winds up uh, being one of the points of discrepancy. So now their second point of pushback yes. is, by the way, we had nothing to hide because we're doing great. We're ahead of Georgia. We're ahead of Texas. Uh, our numbers are out there. DeSantis was late to the game in terms of opening back up. So we weren't trying to force anything. We were we were late in reopening and we're doing better than everybody else. And the numbers show it. So why would we hide them? We do. We are doing well. Uh, we are doing much better than a lot of other states and certainly a lot better than people expected Florida to do, considering that we had spring break open. And, you know, as you said, we're late to the game. And that is something that I've defended and championed for the governor and our health department. The entire time I was working on this project was how well we were doing. Um, but now it's impossible to know how reliable that data is because they changed the way the data is calculated. They changed how they record the data and how they publish it. And data continues to go missing from the website when the uh, dashboard now crashes all the time. How do you know? Uh, so explain this to us as non-statistician, non-quantitative people. One, uh, how do you how can you explain that they are doing data in the wrong way, which is a deceptive way. Um, and um, how can you prove that they do it for bad faith and not just a good faith dispute about how to process the data? So when I offered good faith statistical methods to account for rural counties, um, because a yes or no, this county meets this criteria is a little strict. I offered to do a couple of different statistical methods. You know, my background is in climatology averaging things out with variability to distinguish trends is kind of our you know bread and butter and they said no they said they were going to exempt counties with a population of less than 75,000 entirely from the criteria that would be applied to every other county um, and then they decided to change the way that they 
calculated the number of positive or the percent positive people um, and changed it to new cases over total tests per day. Why does that matter? Uh, which is also deceptive. So it's, why is it deceptive? So let's say I give you 100 apples, right, and 50 are rotten, and I ask you what percent are rotten. You'd say 50%. If I then tell you that 30 were rotten yesterday, 10 were rotten two days before that, um, five are almost completely rotten but not quite, and I've cut the other 50 non-rotten apples into hundreds of tiny little pieces, what percent of the apples are rotten? It's still 50%. Yeah, it's still 50%, but it's about it's 50. Right. Yeah. You've just made it extremely complicated and convoluted. So what we used to do for percent positivity, which was one of the benchmarks that each county had to meet in order to qualify to reopen, it had to be below 10% and decreasing for two weeks. So normally when people think of a percent, they think the number of positive people divided by the number of people tested. That seems honest and fair. Um, they changed it to number of new cases per day over the number of negative tests per day. Mm -hmm. So if you decide you want to get tested five times today, you count five times towards a negative if those are all your results. And that's Whereas the way it if I go positive, I count once. Is that still true? Yes. All right, last that is still thing. how they're referring to positivity. Here's what they say. Forget about the numbers. We're doing great on the numbers. We don't care what she says. But I'll tell you what we do care about. Her. Uh, she didn't like how this was going, and she handled it badly. Uh, here's the response from the Florida Department of Health. Rebecca Jones exhibited a repeated course of insubordination during her time with the department, including her unilateral decisions to modify the department's COVID-19 uh, dashboard without input or approval from the epi, uh, epidemiological team or her supervisors. The blatant disrespect for the professionals who were working around the clock to provide important information for the COVID-19 website was harmful to the team. Having someone disruptive can't be tolerated during this public pandemic led the department to determine that it was best to terminate her employment. In other words, you got a tood problem. You didn't like what they told you, so you handled it badly. Do you accept the criticism? Somewhat, yes. If refusing to mislead the public during a health crisis is insubordination, then I will wear that badge with honor. The way yes. they wanted to do it and, and the way you wanted to do it aren't equal in the eyes of experts? No. Uh, none of the methodology that I was being asked to apply, which really wasn't based on any statistically sound methodology at all, was not science. They were asking me to manually go in and basically type yes or no, this county meets it, with any real risk assessment as to whether or not that county should. There may be plenty of rural counties that were perfectly safe to reopen that we will now never know because the numbers were manipulated. What's your next move? Well, I, as you've heard, I'm out of the job. <laughs> so I'd like to get back to doing what I love. Would you want to go back there? Helping people. Uh, no, not unless there's a, a change in leadership, no. <laughs> So you got to figure out what you do next. Rebecca Jones, I know a lot of this stuff is convoluted. I know this has been uh, very hard for you to be in the spotlight, and there are a lot of big accusations coming your way. So thank you for taking this opportunity to help us understand what this is about and what it means for the people of Florida. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk. It's a debunked line story. Tallahassee Reports writes that Joan was not the architect of Florida's COVID-19 dashboard. She's a scientist, but her doctor is in geology, and her skills were as a data mapper, and she wasn't asked to hide any fucking data. But that's perfect. Red State hiding shit.
Red State. Red State bad. Blue State good. My brother's great. That's basically what they did. Because that fits. It always fits. That's what they want. They want nothing but you people are horrible. To hate. Soledad O'Brien dragged for blatantly lying about Nikki Haley's Confederate flag comment. Nikki Haley, I've struggled with Biden's recent marks. They were gut-wrenching, condescending, regardless of color, gender, or class, to label any individual with he or she is expected to think, believe, and vote as demeaning and disrespectful, not to mention arrogant and entitled. Soledad O'Brien, Nikki Haley told a conservative radio host, Glenn Beck, that the Confederate flag symbolized service, sacrifice, and heritage. So her tweet here is kind of bullshit. And then the whole world corrected her that that wasn't what she said. But she never took it down. Ever. Replies. No, she didn't. No wonder nobody wants you as a journalist. <clears throat> there are very few more dishonest or hate-filled on Twitter than Soledad O'Brien. Her tweet below is utter misrepresentation of Nikki Haley's statement and position. Meanwhile, she gets 25K likes. Another failed journalism attempt. This is exactly the reason the public doesn't can't stand the MSM. You got a lot of things wrong when you tweet. This is another example. Axios. We deleted a tweet saying Nikki Haley said the Confederate flag represents service, sacrifice, and heritage. Our story has been updated to reflect that Haley said people saw the flag as service, sacrifice, and heritage. But hey, come on. Why, why go with facts? S.E. Cup, this is obsessive, delusional, unhealthy behavior. He's fixated on something that is not real. The president is not well. Delita Gabriel, you sided with the rest of the dumbass media about Covington. I sit your ass down. It's real and it's not going away. And there's not a damn thing you of all people can do about it. Well, if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black, Obamagate is far more real than Russian collusion ever was. The Russian collusion fantasy was not real. Obamagate, in which a presidential administration used a national security apparatus to spy on a political rival and incoming president, is quite real. Something that is not real was a Trump-Russia investigation perpetrated by a group of seditious Obamagate conspirators to overthrow the president. It's very real. If you are an actual journalist, you'd understand. But you're just another grifter. I'm building up stories because it's gone. They did it just like everything else. Then we have this hate. Economist editor deletes tweet calling out VP Pence and Kemp for, oh my God, was it a Confederate flag? I mean, it is Georgia. Everybody in Georgia, including the black people, are racist. No, it was a thin blue line flag. Pence and Kemp dining in front of a flag favored by white supremacists at Charlottesville. Flatten the curve. They know exactly who they are, signaling in a city known as the Black Mecca. Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp, a first lady, and I are honored to become vice president, or welcome vice president, back to Georgia. And on the far wall, underneath guitars, this restaurant put up a thin blue line flag. Because they honor their police. It's on the wall. It's not framed in the photo. It's it's just on the wall. It's a decoration. They just happen to be sat there. Probably by the Secret Service. 
John Spink, Governor Kemp and VB Pence lunching at the Star Cafe in Atlanta discussing Georgia's pandemic strategy. And all these other photos show there's all sorts of Ellie shit on the wall. Thomer Hellerman, Pence ordered a sweet tea as he took a seat at his table in the middle of the restaurant. First Lady Marty Kemp offered him hand sanitizer. Gady Epstein deleted a tweet about Pence and the thin blue line flag because rest in peace my mansions. But know this, symbols take on a meaning far beyond what you might wish for them. It is important to acknowledge that. Praship Chakar, yes, especially when you show your utter ignorance on the subject. This is also an important symbol. Yeah. While they're doing their all cops are bad, this is before the guy got killed. Chicago sets deadliest Memorial Day weekend in years. Nobody covered it. What were they covering? New Republic. We're not polarized enough. Ezra Klein's flawed diagnosis of the division in American politics. This article is ripe with so much hate of America. I'm not going to read it. It is just horrible. Democrat, okay, I'll just read a couple things from it. The last few extraordinary months of American life have illustrated the severity of the divide. In late February and early March, as the numbers of coronavirus cases climb, Democrats worried about the situation more than Republicans. A collection of six polls at the time found that over 60% of Democrats worried, while only 37% of Republicans. 538 found that Republican support for the administration handling of the virus was around 80, while Democrats, who only watched CNN and MSNBC, thought he sucked. And it breaks down that we need to be more polarized. We need to run everybody the fuck out with opposing views. Absent a radical shift in the right's priorities, the only way to depolarize our institution is to win big against those who want to keep them undemocratic. That's an interesting choice of words. Because in a democratic country... Twitter doesn't alter people's freedom of speech. And the press doesn't get involved in Twitter beefs. But Joe Scarborough, Mika, and Trump that we covered briefly, oh, that went into the fucking press room. My wife deserves better. And I'm joined now by CNN chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Tubin. You know, Jeffrey, Twitter says it's deeply sorry about the pain that they're working to figure out how to handle situations like this. I wonder if there's any legal recourse that this man has. You know, I think, frankly, it's unlikely um, that he has any ability to sue Twitter or, or, or even or even the president. But, you know, Twitter's a private company. They have rules. Like, Greyhound buses have rules. They, you, you can't stay on a Greyhound bus if you break the rules. President Trump has broken the rules of Twitter over and over again, and Twitter has done nothing but put out statements of corporate gibberish like the one it did today. You know, they either have rules where, I went and reviewed them today, targeted harassment. This is precisely targeted harassment at at Joe Scarborough and certainly at the memory of Mrs. Kasutis. So, I mean, the, the, all Twitter should do is follow its own rules and take these tweets down. So there's no recourse for a civil suit or something like that that, uh, the, that, that Lori's husband would have? 
I, you know, I, I don't see it. You know, li- the libel laws are very strict uh, in terms of uh, whether uh, you can recover for libel. And even though his wife is not a public figure, if you read the tweets, they don't specifically say anything um, a- about her that I think a court would find as, as libelous. But I do think that um, this is a uh, it, it, it's it, it's a violation of Twitter's own rules, and Twitter is just afraid of both the president and right wing trolls who follow him, and that's why they're not doing what they should be doing, which is taking this tweet down. So I, I want to ask you now, not the legal question, but the human being question, because there, there's two elements to this. Joe Scarborough being accused of murder, which didn't happen. And then, uh, which is, you know, you can see how infuriating that is and just the, the insinuation and the direct allegation of that and how that would affect him. And then on the other hand, you have this window from this letter, uh, into Lori Klesudis' husband's heart, really. That's kind of what he shows us. And I just wonder when, and obviously, I, th- I think we can take him at face value for the pain that he and his family is feeling. I mean, what do you think about the president's behavior? Well, first of all, Joe Scarborough is the one who really might have a libel suit here because, you know, he's a public figure and there's a higher standard. But an accusation, mm-hmm. a knowing falsehood of murder would, I think, uh, form the basis for, for a legitimate lawsuit. Now, I'm sure Joe Scarborough doesn't want to get involved in this, doesn't want to, you know, prolong this controversy, but he's the one who I think really might have a, uh, might, might have a, a valid legal claim. You know, as for Mr. Klesudis, this is, as you point out, a story about an innocent human being and the memory of an innocent human being. If Twitter had any decency, if Twitter had any corporate conscience, they would just take this down uh, automatically because it, it serves no public purpose. It is not consistent with the values that Twitter proposes to supposed, supposedly uh, embodies. You know, the, the the license to be on Twitter is not a license to say anything. I, you know, I spent some time on the Twitter uh, guidelines this morning to try to figure out what the rules are. They're enormously complicated and hard to follow. But it is certainly clear that accusing people falsely of murder is not something Twitter exists to uh, to propagate. And so, I, I mean, I, I just think Twitter's position here is totally indefensible. Yes. yes. Has the president seen the letter that Laura Flippis' husband, widower, sent uh, to Jack Dorsey, Twitter CEO, saying that his tweets were emotionally traumatic for him and for uh, his, ex- his wife's family? I don't know if he's seen the letter, um, but I do know that our hearts are with Lori's family at this time. Why is the president making these unfounded allegations? I mean, this is, this is pretty nuts, isn't it? Uh, the president's accusing somebody of, of possible murder. The family is pleading with the president to, to please stop uh, unfounded conspiracy theories. Why is he doing this? 
Well, you know, I would note that the president said this morning that this is not an original Trump thought, um, and it is not. In fact, 2003 on Don Imus's show, it was Don Imus and Joe Scarborough that joked about killing an intern, joked and laughed about it. So uh, that was, I'm sure, pretty hurtful to Lori's family. And Joe Scarborough himself brought this up with Don Imus, and Joe Scarborough himself can answer. He's the president of the United States, and he's accusing somebody of possibly murder. I mean, this is different. He's, he's, he's not a private citizen. He's the president. Yeah, and Joe Scarborough, if we want to start talking about false accusations, we have quite a few we can go through about Mika no, I'm asserting asking, I'm asking about Mika I'm asking about the president's allegations. And, I, and I'm replying to you and saying this morning, as recently, I believe it was this morning or yesterday, Mika accused the president of being responsible for 100,000 deaths in this country. That's incredibly irresponsible. They've dragged his family through the mud. They've made false accusations that I won't go through, that I would not say from this podium against the president of the United States. And they should be held to account for their falsehoods. Joe Scarborough should be held to account for saying people will die by taking hydroxychloroquine. Never mind the millions of Americans and people across the world who take it for rheumatoid arth- arthritis and other reasons. There are a litany of false headlines like Mika. Spreading a false uh, conspiracy theory that suggests that he's you back responsible to, for murder? I would point you back to Joe Scarborough, who laughed and joked about this item on Don Imus' show. It's Joe Scarborough that has to answer these questions. So Stephen. Stephen. Thank you. Hi. I'm going to read something right quick. Timothy Claude Sotis wrote, quote, conspiracy theorists, including most recently the President of the United States, continue to spread their vile and misinformation on the platform, disparaging the memory of my wife. Why won't the President give this widower peace and stop tweeting about this conspiracy theory involving his wife. Why, why can't this litter get peace from the president? I've already asked and answered this question, and our hearts are our hearts are with question. our hearts are with Lori. And I think uh, the onus is on Joe Scarborough to explain his interaction with Don Imus and his laughing on this very matter on Don Imus's show. Chanel, the litter. Excuse me. The litter is talking specifically about the president. Are you not going to answer that? Warrants um, with regards to ex-CIA chief John Brennan. How far, how willing are you able to go forward and say that he lied to the FBI or obstructed justice in the process of discussing Russian collusion and the Trump family? And on that note, you, we now have new information showing that that Obama himself used foreign intelligence to actually request surveillance on the 5th and 26th floor of Trump Tower. So to what extent was John Brennan behind that? To what extent can you share with us, with us what you know? Yeah, John Brennan, of all of the... Uh I'll call them bad actors because, indeed, they were um, of the Obama administration. John Brennan probably has the most to answer because it was John Brennan who sat before Congress and said the Steele dossier paid for by Hillary Clinton, paid for by the DNC, that that document played no part of the role in opening the Russia probe, when, in fact, we know it did, when, in fact, we know it was the impetus um, testified before a FISA court for its truthfulness to spy on, on the Trump campaign. So John Brennan of all people probably has more to answer. Uh, so too do Samantha Power and Susan Rice um, and these individuals who admitted under oath uh, that they in fact um, spoke to foreign leaders and uh, representatives of foreign leaders during their transition but yet somehow during the Trump transition that was uncalled for. What has been done um, all throughout history was uncalled for and meriting unmasking and meriting uh, cornering General Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. All of these people have really legitimate questions to answer. I think we're slowly getting to the bottom of this, but it's a real travesty and really one of the biggest political scandals in modern history. Yes. 
Now understand, this rumor has been there forever. Trump didn't invent this. Twitter will not remove President Trump's tweet on Joe Scarborough on the death of Lori Klausudis. A rumor that's been around forever. Jim Shuto. New, despite an emotional plea from widower of Lori Klaus, uh, whatever the fuck, to Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, the company will not remove tweets by President Trump insinuating without basis that Joe Scarborough was responsible for Claudette's death. We're deeply sorry about the pain these statements and the attention they're drawing are causing the family. Sorry, I'm fought like zero. We've been working to expand existing product features to policies so we can more effectively address things like this going forward. Mika, read the letter and please do the right thing. If you agree, please retweet. Close to 100,000 dead, 36 million unemployed. This is the age of Trump. Do you know who brought this up, this rumor? Democrats. They used it against him. Trump's just sticking it in his eye, because guess what? Fucktard's playing fuck, fuck, goose. Every day, he goes on a TV and says all sorts of shit. So, what does Trump do? Trump does what Trump does. Should he? No, I'm not saying he should. I mean, I think it's pretty fucking childish fucking horse shit. But he does it, and guess what? He gets his feeling hurt, and his bone partner, Mika, get their feelings hurt. And now it's in the press room? That's a question? That's news? Well, yeah, because this is news, too. Journalists complain Kaylee McKinney's unkindness is interrupting their attempt to destroy the country. This is satire, but it's pretty true. Over Memorial Day, as Americans paid tribute to those heroes who fought and died so that Gretchen Whitmer could become the fascist queen of Michigan, a controversy broke out over Donald Trump's new press secretary, Kaylee McKinney. And I don't think that's how you say her name. I don't really don't care. At a press conference with journalists and other Democrats, McKinney was asked what time it was, whereupon she drew a samurai sword, and in a series of motions too swift for the human eye to record, she dismembered the entire White House press corps, leaving them a mere collection of bleeding torsos, writhing and shrieking wordlessly on the floor, with actual raise the intelligent level of their questions. Ms. McKelly then lifted a flamethrower and reduced what the left of the journalists to a pile of ashes and blew out the window in the Rose Garden where they acted as mulch, thus performing a useful function for the first time in their lives. Chris Wallace at Fox News said Ms. McKinney had overreacted, saying, back in my day when the press corps was interrupting Ronald Reagan struggling against the Soviet slave empire by calling him a warmonger and an idiot actor, we would not have allowed anyone to suggest we were a bunch of biased and intellectually corrupt enemies of truth and decency, no matter how true it was. Now when the press corps is covering up for a senile hologram who hasn't spoken an honest word in decades and shouting meaningless insult to the president during a crisis, I find it intolerable that we've been caught in the act. In another incident, a reporter questioned the president's demand that governors allow houses of worship to reopen, whereupon McKinney raised her staff and unleashed a series of plagues on the entire journalistic community. Blithering Prevocations III, the editor-in-chief of the New York Times, a former newspaper, said the action was completely incomprehensible. He then continued to Arlington Cemetery, where he and the rest of the Times staff spent Memorial Day spitting on the graves. That's pretty true. To our intro, a reporter just repeatedly asked how many dead Americans we should tolerate. 
press secretary rightly points out how stupid of a question this is. For those wondering, the ridiculous question was asked by Ryan Lizzo Politico. He is so leftist terrible. Before I know how I should react to this video, can the great and wise fake conservative Jonah Dispatch share with us his feelings of Kaylee McCaney was indefensible and grotesque? His follow-up question revealed the real purposes of the thinking, getting people to vote against Trump. Progressives politicize everything. He is a callous as he suggests Trump is. She's very good. It wasn't a rude smackdown, but a well-articulated response that buried him. Very impressively. The best part is the White House reporters being absolutely convinced they're smarter than her and they get totally torched. Ryan Lizza was the latest to get schooled. Why is that a question? You got your far left Vietnam War digs in? Let it go. They're so bad, ex-CBS News president skewers decidedly liberal media. And understand, he was a liberal. He was a liberal. They were liberal back then, just not crazy liberal. And then we have this incredible fucking Atlantic piece. Donald Trump, the most unmanly president. He's too masculine or he's not masculine enough. Which is it? In there, a vain, cowardly, lying, vulgar, jabbering blowhard and not a real man your father and grandfather would have respected. What's all this real man talk about anyway? We've been assured the future is female, and we're sure the fathers of millennials who write for and read The Atlantic voted for Hillary because she wasn't a man. We suppose Joe Biden's a real man, seeing how he's talking about beating up President Trump behind the gym to teach him, get this, to respect women and challenge LD former Marines to push-up contests after calling them fat for hitting him with a challenging question. That's what he did. The Blaze TV's Lauren Chen noted that back in 2016, before the election, the Atlantic was calling Trump a climax of American masculinity and warned of the error of equating aggression with competence. So in other words, if you believe masculinity is toxic, Trump is masculine. But if you believe masculinity is a hallmark of our fathers, well, he's a piece of shit. Lauren Chen, Donald Trump is both too masculine and not masculine enough, depending on whether we're describing masculinity as a good or bad thing for the day. Whatever the case, Trump is the bad thing, because Trump is bad. And she puts the articles side by side. That's news. Also news, Brian Seltzer. Again, by looking to the future. What will historians say about this moment? How will history books record this time? Well, nobody knows for sure, but I think we've already seen heroes emerge and also some villains in the midst of this pandemic. This weekend, the New York Times, which likes to think of itself as the first rough draft of history, is trying to fight coronavirus fatigue and pay proper tribute to those we've lost. Today's front page, you see it there, is a list of American COVID-19 victims. And it goes on and on for three more pages. Names and brief descriptions of a thousand lives lost. And the total here, the thousand, is just 1% of the nearly 100,000 confirmed dead in America. I think the history books, decades from now, will grapple with a lot. They're going to grapple with the differing death rates from country to country, the deadly differences between early safety measures and delayed responses the unequal treatment of vulnerable populations like nursing home residents. Historians are going to look back at late February and early March, and they're going to say, what were they thinking? 
who was in charge. They will sift through old tweets and they will see who was in charge. They will see President Trump. They will see that Trump waded deeper and deeper into disinformation and distraction as the death toll rose. The history books will show that the president modeled worst practices instead of best practices. He flouted safety guidelines this week and refused to keep his mask on, even at a manufacturing plant where it was required. The only photos of Trump modeling a mask were taken by anonymous sources and like kind of smuggled out to the press. Historians will show that the president undermined his own government by downplaying the threat and by hyping unproven solutions. They will note the thrill in his voice when he said he was taking hydro, um, hydroxychloroquine, despite mounting evidence that it doesn't work against COVID-19 and could, in fact, be harmful. The history books will also note his obsession with the press, like when he said, I was just waiting to see your eyes light up when he said he was taking chloroquine, and his comment that he didn't want to give the press the pleasure of seeing him with a mask on. Historians will also likely note Americans didn't know what to believe. Americans who were confused by the president's conduct, who were distracted by his deep state conspiracy rhetoric. They will note that the president had entire propaganda networks at his disposal to help him change the subject. They will note how sad it was that everything, even doctors and researchers, were placed on a pro-Trump or anti-Trump spectrum. You're either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And I think historians will also address why so many Republican leaders just sat there silently while the president's conduct went from alarming to appalling and beyond. Now, maybe this doesn't belong in a history book. Maybe it's too pathetic. But President Trump is continuing to accuse MSNBC's Joe Scarborough of being a murderer. And this weekend, Trump is urging people to investigate it. This claim was investigated and debunked 20 years ago. But he's out there sharing it, just like he's sharing Magosphere Twitter posts, mocking Nancy Pelosi's face and Stacey Abrams' weight and Hillary Clinton and so on. Now, on Friday night, the president called New York Times editor Dean Bacay, one of the great lions of journalism, one of the dumbest men in journalism. Hmm. Now, there's nothing dumb about putting these names on the front page. It's pretty smart. It's a nod to history. Because we don't have to wait 20 or 30 years to read the history. Deep down inside, we know the story right now. So we shouldn't mince words when we talk about it. I think it helps to take a, take a list, to make a list, to take stock of all of the aberrant behavior that happens day to day. Because incredible leaders have risen up from this tragedy. Think about the past two to three months of this pandemic and the leaders we've seen emerge. Some have risen while others have sunk to new lows. Historians someday will say everyone had to decide for themselves how low would they go? To what depths would they sink? What about you? If accusing people of murder isn't too low, what is? The balancing act for the press is that we have to document leadership failures in the face of a crisis. We have to be very clear about it, but not lower ourselves and fail the audience. And on that front, you should hold us accountable. Let me give you an example involving your paper. That incredible front page this morning with a thousand names of COVID-19 victims. Uh, some sleuths on the internet found that one of the thousand names uh, died of a homicide, not of COVID-19. And then all these trolls on Twitter tried to act like the entire thing was discredited, that it was all fake news. Now, of course, shame on them for trying to take one error and smearing the entire New York Times with it. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? That we have these bad faith actors that take good reporting, good but flawed reporting, and try to smear with it. Um, 
You know, I'm not sure about good faith and bad faith. I just think all reporting is going to be flawed. It's always the best we can do. It's always we're trying to get you the, you know, as much as we know when we know it. And I think to the degree that we pretend otherwise, that sets us up for a kind of criticism. When, you know, every, every journalistic project has errors. Sometimes you get things totally wrong. Often you get things a little wrong and the best you can do is correct them as fast as you can. And I think, you know, we ought to be straight with our audiences about that. But my concern is we live in an environment where any error is turned into a conspiracy and turned into a proof of a plot, and that's damaging. I, I just don't know how to fight back against that, though. I don't know how to show folks that journalists are mostly acting in good faith. How the fuck is that journalism? That's an all-out assault on the President of the United States. None of it based in facts. None. I mean, he said it was debunked 20 years ago. A journalist would say, because Democrats raised it. But Rasheen Kassim shares striking example of WAPO's double standards in covering Trump and Biden. Jonathan Capehart was among the seemingly endless parade of blue-check liberals who lined up to say, Joe Biden, ain't you ain't black, remark, come on, you ain't black, comment to the chat that got us. Clearly a joke. Biden says you ain't black, and context dies another death, Jonathan Capehart. We know we've seen this before, but damn, it feels good to be a Democrat. Because while a WAPO fixer like Capehart can make excuses for Joe Biden, that's not how it works with Donald Trump when he says vulgar things. You don't understand sarcasm, how Trump and his allies downplay his comments. Come on, Biden, you ain't black comment was clearly a joke. Side by side. Same newspaper. Same newspaper. Seltzer, Reliable Sources Newsletter. The balancing act for the press is that we have to document leadership failure in the face of a crisis. We have to be clear, very clear about it, but not lower ourselves and fail the audience. On that front, you should hold us accountable. And people put pictures of the Cuomo brothers and the swab. That was okay. That's holding people accountable. For what? For killing grandma? Because that's what he did. Joe Biden, while not wearing a mask, tells CNN that wearing a mask projects leadership. Curtis Houck, CNN Dana Bass, we're going to play this in a second, tells CNN uh, uh, doing Jeff Zucker's bidding in the Biden interview, softballs and sucking up to Biden, allowing him to suggest Trump is the reason why people have died from coronavirus. In other words, committing murder. CNN only cares about their agenda, not facts. Mom in Georgia. Biden's a fool. It was all for show. He wears a mask when he and his wife only, and when he's in interview, he doesn't. What the fuck's that? Joe Biden, who calls voters damn liars and challenges the push-up, dings Trump for having trouble controlling his emotions. Trump not wearing a mask reminds me of a guy that I grew up playing ball. They would walk around with a ball in their hand, but they didn't have like to hit very much. Biden asks if he possesses the mental faculties the president hits Trump. Talk about a guy who misses a step. I don't want to get down on the nicknames, but this is a fellow who looks like he's having trouble controlling his emotions. Opponents are trying, the president is trying to paint a picture of you as somebody who's too old to be president and that you're missing a step. How are you going to combat that? Watch me. <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, talk about a guy who's missing a step. He's missing something, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get down into giving him nicknames, and, but uh, 
this is a fellow who um, looks like he's having trouble controlling his own emotions. Uh, um, what worries me is uh, you know, all this stuff about Biden's hiding. Well, you know, the fact of the matter is it's working pretty well so far doing the rules. He's behind in almost every, every state. Um, doesn't mean it's going to be that way come November. But the idea that uh, he seems to get more erratic the more he feels like he's behind the curve. Better so off. do you think wearing a mask projects strength or weakness? Leadership. But it presents and projects his leadership. Presidents are supposed to lead, not engage in folly and be falsely masculine. It reminds me of the guys that I grew up with playing ball. They'd walk around with a ball in their hand, but they didn't like to hit very much. Let's talk about, you mentioned the mask, that you wore a mask yesterday. President Trump went to a Memorial Day service. He did not wear a mask. Um, it's not just some people making fun of you. He did. Yeah. He did on Twitter. He retweeted a photo of you wearing it. He's trying to belittle you for wearing a mask, um, making it seem like it's a sign of weakness. Is it? He's a fool, an absolute fool to talk that way. I mean, every leading doc in the world is saying we should wear a mask when you're in a crowd, and especially when you know you're going to be in a position where you're going to inadvertently get closer than 12 feet to somebody. I know we're 12 feet apart. I get that. But um, it's just absolutely this, this macho stuff for a guy... I shouldn't get going, but it, it, it just is. It, it's cost people's lives. It's costing people's lives. And like I said, we're almost 100,000 dead today. 100,000 people. Columbia studies showing that we could have, if you just started a, a week earlier, would have saved thousands of lives. I mean, these are these, this is a tragedy. But wearing a mask has become a cultural and political flashpoint. And the president is involved in that even stoking that sure he is and look look he's, and he's stoking deaths it's not going to increase the likelihood of people are going to be better so off do you think wearing a mask projects strength or weakness leadership but it presents and projects his leadership we're going to play the whole interview in a second but that is how it's always been if you go back to 2016 if you go back to 2012 you go to the 28 People or the individual running for the office are asked, they're given these softballs to hit whatever the fuck the opponent said. Yet, conservatives never, ever, 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 ever get the ability to do that. Nobody says, well, this person said that, and what do you think about that? It is... Uh, the criticism has been coming towards you for doing this. And over on this website, or this doctor, or this expert, or this whatever the fuck, um, it's pretty proven that you are a fuck-up. <laughs> that, that, that pretty much sums up what each interview is for a conservative. They, they don't get the ability to softball Unless they're on Fox. The problem I've always had is the left gets seven networks. Seven. To just tee up on their opponent with no pushback. None at all. 
But Seltzer says the job is to keep, you know, to fucking hold people accountable. We must hold them accountable. What what about Whitmer? Can we hold that accountable? Matt Whitlock, I am the husband to the governor. Will this make a difference? Yikes. After Whitmer urged Michiganers not to flock to newly open areas of the state, her husband asked for special treatment to access their boat. Whitmer first issued a statewide stay at home. The morning I was going out with the office called me for it was a gentleman on hold of one of his boat in the water before the weekend. Marina owner Tad Docker posted, being Memorial Weekend, the fact that we started working three weeks late means there's no chance it's going to happen. Well, our office personnel explained this to the man, and he replied, I am the husband to the governor. At a press conference, Whitmer says her husband, Mark Malloy, made a failed attempt at humor by joking, asking, if being married to the governor would get his boat out faster. To be honest, I wasn't laughing either. He regrets it. I wish it... I wish he wouldn't have. It's a common theme on the left, and they're allowed to in the media. It's just a joke. I do feel compelled to address the most recent one about my husband, Mark. My husband made a failed attempt at humor last week when checking in with the small business that helps with the, our boat and dock up north. Knowing it wouldn't make a difference, he jokingly asked if marrying, if being married to me might move him up in the queue. Obviously, with the motorized boating prohibition in our early days of COVID-19, he thought it might get a laugh. It didn't. And to be honest, I wasn't laughing either when it was relayed to me, because I knew how it would be perceived. He regrets it. I wish it wouldn't have happened. And that's really all we have to say about it. I mean, does anybody believe it went down like that? Does anybody? No. He was using his power. That's what the left does. We've got a governor that opened up shit just so that they could fucking get jewelry. Then we got this one. It's awesome. Byron York uses Politico piece to slam Dems in real reason they want America locked down. They need us to be broken, desperate, and hopeless to buy into their stick. And if America's recovering, that's not good for Biden in November. Think about that for a minute. What's good for America is bad for the Democrats. Hey, we didn't come up with it. Byron York. Democrats fear rapid economic growth in the third quarter. Best economy data we've seen in the history of this country. For Biden, a worst-case scenario. And that's from their article. That's from their article. Somehow it's, yeah, okay. Not national news. Whitmer, not national news. No, it's never. Phyllis Walker, and this is why blue states would love to stay closed for an extended amount of time. Democrats cheering for the economic failure. This is why states with D refuse to open. Zeke Emanuel, Trump's. Or Obama's dude. The Atlantic. Completely protecting children from harm is impossible, but the available evidence suggests that for the most children in the United States, the risk of COVID at summer camp is very modest. Anthony Falke. Staying closed too long could cause irreparable damage. But the media is not going to hold them to that. Oh, fucking hell no. This morning... 
They're starting contact tracing in Nashville. They've released money to start contact tracing. Simultaneously, the health department said, because it wasn't done by the health department, it was done by Democrats, the National Health Department said they're going to discontinue giving out information to people. And on top of it, Matt in Oregon brings us, Apple just gave 1.5 billion iPad iPhone users a reason to leave. Apple's got a lot of right, lot right recently, including its iPhone 12 pricing and the big iOS coronavirus-focused update. But the company has also now given its 1.5 billion iPhone iPad user worldwide a good reason to leave. Last year, The Guardian broke a shocking story that Apple was employing contractors to listen to and grade serial recordings. This was done without user knowledge, and contractors regularly heard confidential information for iPhone and iPad listeners. Apple subsequently issued a full apology, admitting we have not been fully living up to our ideals. But now, according to the Guardian whistleblower, we have learned that nothing has changed. 524 update. Those worried about the privacy and security on iOS have now received another blow after Motherboard revealed hackers have had their hands on Apple's Apple's next-gen iOS 14 code for months. Sometimes screenshots and description of the new features leak before the official reveal. This time, however, an entire version of the operating system is leaked and is being widely circulated amongst hackers and security researchers. This carries a significantly security risk, and with Apple badly needing a win after numerous iOS 13 problems, mean iOS 14 risk launching with even more issues than its predecessor. Apple has declined to comment. So we're talking anything you talked about, they heard it. They all heard it. And they put contract trace in your shit. That's what Apple did. Because they're liberals. They are all for Big Brother looking at you when you don't want to do what they want you to do. The rest of the time, Big Brother needs to fuck off. Trump, his people, like I've said a million times... If he fucking wiretap fucking Biden, sweet God almighty, we'd have impeachment number seven. Because remember, there were three or four or five before we even did the impeachment, and they're trying to impeach him again. Yeah, no shit. So let's get into the Biden stuff. They're still moving on from it. CNN averaged four minutes per day on Biden gaff, then stopped covering completely. But he was allowed in this interview we're going to play in a bit to blame the host for what he said. And here's the rest of the media letting him off the hook because he's got the D. You think there's a risk that not just Joe Biden, but the Democratic Party in general just takes for granted that, well, the black, you know, the black people are with us. So we don't really have to give them anything else. They're going to vote for us regardless. Look, they voted for Joe Biden in overwhelming numbers, six in 10 black voters, particularly in southern states. They all voted for Joe Biden. We don't need to offer anything more. Do you worry that that is the attitude that Democrats are taking toward the black community? I mean, I, I know that's the attitude, you know. I mean, that's why I don't even care about the, the words and the lip service and the apology is cool, but the best apology is actually a black agenda. I wanted to ask him about reparations because, you know, uh, in his black agenda to lift every voice, uh, he committed to studying reparations. And, you know, I just wanted to ask him what does reparations 
you know, for black people look like to him and what is he prepared to do, you know, based on that study. Um, Chuck, let's talk about this presidential yeah. race between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Joe Biden was on the popular radio show over Zoom this this time called The Breakfast Club. Charlemagne the God interviewed him. Mm-hmm. And Joe Biden made a comment that he's been having to walk back now for two days where he said, effectively, if you're even considering voting for Donald Trump, quote, you ain't black. Um, obviously, that was offensive to a lot of people. Uh, it gets right. to the kind of campaign he's trying to conduct from his own home, doing it virtually through these interviews. And yet he's doing well in the polls. A Quinnipiac poll and a Fox News poll show him yeah. opening up leads among many important groups. What is the state of this campaign for Joe Biden right now? By the way, just a quick aside observation. I'm, I'm struck about if Donald Trump makes the same type of gaffe, he blows through it, plows through it, pretends it never happened. You know, and Joe Biden, uh, the expectation is he's got to deal with it, and he tried to deal with it. And it's a reminder that this is not the first time that he's um, sometime gotten loose with his words, particularly when it comes to feeding into old stereotypes at times. Look, I think it's a reminder of the risk-reward of this Biden-in-the-basement strategy, okay? I think there's... There's some on his team that think it's better to keep him to stay in the basement, make this Trump versus Trump. Every, you know, Trump desperately wants to make this Trump versus Biden. The less you're out in public, the, the harder that will be. At the same time, he was able to sit here and make a gaffe while in his basement. That isn't a good sign either for Biden. So, look, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a bad one-day story. But the polls are the polls, and we're seeing the more this is Trump versus Trump, the better it is for Biden. I want to ask you about the remark you made last week on The yeah. Breakfast Club. You said, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or for Trump, you ain't black. Well, now, you've since said that uh, you shouldn't have been so cavalier. But during the same interview, you said the NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run, which isn't true. So... My question for you is about what some supporters say they're worried about, which is that all of this could end up hurting the enthusiasm that you really need to win among black voters. Well, first of all, um, you know, uh, it was a mistake, number one. And I was smiling when he asked me the question. I was, you know, I I, I shouldn't have been such a wise guy with him. He was being a wise guy, and I responded kind. I shouldn't have done that. It was a mistake. I have never taken the African-American community for granted. Never, never, never once. And I've had overwhelming support in my state and overwhelming support from the African-American community in my whole career. But I have never taken it for granted. I work like the devil for it, and I have to earn it every single time. Nobody's vote should be taken for granted. That's what it conveyed, uh, my, my response. And I've never done that. And if you notice, I, you know, this all the time we're talking about... Uh, in the primary, well, Biden can't win because look what he did. He didn't. He didn't. He came in 99th or something in Iowa and you know and, and and New Hampshire. And I said, wait till we get to a representative state. I've had overwhelming support from the African American community. My whole they're going to be out there for you. And while Brian Seltzer and all them are playing it off, Jonathan Turley notes CNN defends Joe Biden with deceptively edited video. 
Remember back when the media used to get outraged, supposedly manipulated videos, taking hours of undercover footage with abortion workers, for instance, and using the highlights for a new segment were said to be deceptive? Yet we have CNN presenting comments from Joe Biden as a way of excusing his recently blatant racist comments from Friday, and they clipped the ensuing few seconds of the recording, which would have actually deepened his problems. Jonathan Turley presented this subterfuge that normally would have CNN media watcher Yorkie Brian Seltzer in a fit of outrage. Um, I'm going to have to get my glasses for this. In fact, we're going to have to go into read mode or edit mode so I can even get this because it's so fucking small font. CNN John King just began a question on how some are trying to make a big deal over Biden's You're Not Black comment. See again, CNN then played the clip ending with, I extended the Voting Rights Act 25 years. I have a record that's second to none. However, the quote was edited to exclude the next line. NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. Come on, take a look at my record. That is a false statement that the NAAC has publicly rebutted. It never endorsed Biden or anyone. Um, CNN just replayed the same edited clip in another interview, proceeding by derisive comment about those trying to make hay about this. In a story where Biden is proclaiming his support among black voters, CNN omitted the line where he falsely claimed NAACP endorsement. How is his... Uh, People's reply, how is his record second to none? Trump did more in three years than him, and Obama did in eight, and he did in 40-plus years. In fact, Joe Biden really fucked over minorities. That's This is a black person. How they still back him is beyond comprehension. Uh, Tay Kafefe, John King at CNN edited Joe Biden's comment about NAAC endorsing him. That's revisionist history and dishonest reporting. 25 years, and that's the only thing they can bring up he's done? Think about that. 25 fucking years. That's all they can come up with. Then you got Charlemagne the God tells Joy Reid it's time to stop putting burden on black voters to show up for Dems. It has come to a point where we stop putting the burden on black voters to show up for Democrats and start putting the burden on Democrats to show up for black voters. But nobody's fucking carrying that. Nobody. It's so bad, a liberal dude came out with this. This is so funny. He literally made a tweet screed on how his black card has been revoked. Since Joe Biden revoked my black card, I've developed desire for many cheeses. This me is me one week after Joe Biden revoked my black card, and he's starting to turn white. Uh, I fucked it up. Guess I won't be needing seasonings anymore, and he shows us all his African-American stuff, hot sauce. It's gone. Uh, apparently, this guy has my black card now. It's a white liberal dude. He's then uh, Dave Chappelle in the skit. This is me six months. This is the only court I'm balling on. It's a tennis court. <laughs> I haven't had my black card revoked for 24 hours, and I've already been called a cracker without the hard R, of course. I now have more information to help questions I posed not too long ago. Do white people really like cheese a lot? Is that a myth? Getting accustomed to not being black anymore is going to be easier than I thought. Yes. We're buying a pickup truck. (laughs) 
And then, you ain't black, a white dude, gangsta, pistol in it, he's sagging, and it's like a 70-year-old white guy. And I just laugh my ass off. But, you know, media, we're not going to cover that. Why would we cover that? It's bad for them. Dave Wasserman, a Cook political reporter, explains why Joe Biden's You Ain't Black Gaff is potentially a major problem. Ordinarily, it's easy to dismiss buying gas because they're priced into voter expectation. But this one might be different. Black voters are the margin in five of six most critical electoral prize states. Florida, Mississippi, Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And Biden just handed Trump a new three-word fail meme. Biden base is primarily was in the primary was older African Americans who will vote for him overwhelmingly. The challenge for Biden remains younger black voters who liked voted for Obama, didn't vote in 2016, and don't identify with either either political party. More young black people are like me. They're realist. What did you do? Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? The challenge for Biden remains young black voters. I fucked that up. Trump has next to no appeal or credibility with this demographic, but his campaign goal will be to drive down Biden's appeal with young black voters. Crime bill, Anita Hill, housing, busing, to blur distinction and depressed turnout, as in 2016. It can work, and margins matter. In other words, will you ain't black be forgotten by the news cycle in a few days? Of course it will be. Should Dems be concerned about the Trump camp potential to weaponize it and target digital ads this fall? Absolutely. I'm not talking about one gap producing some seismic shift in the black vote. Black voters are going to reject Trump by a massive margin, but Biden winning 91 Seven with 60% turnout versus 88 to 10 with 55 turnout could be the difference in key states. And that's why repeatedly you're hearing our intro, which I'm going to play again, and I'll lead you right into the Biden interview, and then we'll talk about it. That's why they're trying to get this off the air. You know, I'm a little revved up, okay, because... This is a distraction. Vice President Biden spoke uh, to his comments on The Breakfast Club. He apologized. He clarified. He said he shouldn't have been so cavalier. But we need to move on and talk about the issues and what's really at stake here. Vice President shouldn't have said it. He apologized for it. Uh, but I really think the gall and the nerve of President Trump. I believe that Joe Biden was incorrect in, in saying uh, the statement, you ain't black. Uh, but I also believe that his apology was sufficient. That apology was given swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier, I apologize. To his credit, Joe Biden recognized within minutes that he had gotten carried away. I think uh, he has apologized and he should have uh, apologized. It was like, you know, one of those jokes that just falls flat. It was almost the end of the interview and you need to understand the context. I mean, Biden made an error. He apologized for it and did move on. I mean, we, we can obsess on this, but this is, in, in the scheme of things, this is not going to amount to diddly squat. You mentioned the mask, that you wore a mask yesterday. President Trump went to a Memorial Day service. He did not wear a mask. Um, it's not just some people making fun of you. He did. He yeah. did on Twitter. He retweeted a photo of you wearing it. He's trying to belittle you for wearing a mask, um, making it seem like 
it's a sign of weakness, is it? But wearing a mask has become a cultural and political flashpoint. And the president is involved in that, even stoking that. Sure he is. And look, look he's, and he's stoking deaths. It's not going to increase the likelihood that people are going to be better so off. So do you think wearing a mask projects strength or weakness? Leadership. There's a real possibility that the economy could, could surge right yeah. before the election. And the president could use that as a talking point for yeah. his re-election. How do you well, deal with that? You did make an effort to clean up that comment pretty quickly. It still got a lot of attention. President Trump says offensive things. He never apologizes for it. Is there a double standard here? Some Democrats have said, Mr. Vice President, stop apologizing. You're, you're going to say dumb things. Don't apologize, because that's not the world we're living well, no. in. The president is stepping up his attacks on uh, mail-in voting. How confident are you that the election in November is going to be safe, secure, and fair? It depends a lot on whether or not the president follows through with his threats. Your political opponents are trying, the president is trying to paint a picture of you as somebody who's too old to be president and that you're missing a step. How are you going to combat that? Watch me. <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, talk about a guy who... Tonight, two images reflect the split screen this campaign has become. President Trump in a factory without a mask, surrounded by people who are all wearing them. And his rival, Joe Biden, out for the first time publicly since March, his own face covered. He was standing uh, outside with his wife, perfect conditions, perfect weather. They're inside, they don't wear masks. And so I thought it was very unusual that he had one on. Biden tonight firing right back. He's a fool. An absolute fool to talk that way. I mean, every leading doc in the world is saying we should wear a mask when you're in a crowd. This macho stuff for, for a guy, oh, I shouldn't get going, but it, it, it just is, it, it's cost people's lives. They're so off. do you think wearing a mask projects strength or weakness? Leadership. But it presents and projects his leadership. President Trump is hailing today's stock market jump, using it to talk up the economy and press states to quickly reopen. But as the U.S. approaches 100,000 COVID deaths, the president's Democratic opponent is offering a new pointed attack on Mr. Trump's leadership during this crisis. Ben Tracy reports tonight from the White House. It was a stark contrast on Memorial Day. President Trump without a mask. His November opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, wearing one. The president then retweeted someone making fun of how Biden looked. Today, the president seemed confused as to when you're supposed to wear a mask. The president also taking a swipe at his Democratic opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, who, unlike President Trump, wore a mask to his state's Memorial Monday. President Trump sharing this tweet making fun of Biden's choice. He's a fool. Dan, excellent, excellent uh, interview. Uh, it, very important. And I was taking notes. I saw at the end he was getting, obviously, understandably emotional uh, when he was answering your last question. But earlier, uh, and I'm looking up my notes, he said the president of the United States is a fool, an absolute fool to talk that way about uh, his wearing, the, about the former vice president's wearing a mask yesterday. He said this macho stuff uh, from the president, it's costing people's lives. And then he said presidents are supposed to lead, not engage in folly and be falsely masculine. And then he said, I'm never going to go try to stoop to where he is. A very strong words. Take us a little bit behind the scenes. What was it like up there in Wilmington, Delaware? 
Very strong. Well, first of all, it was a very uh, small footprint <laughs> that we had. It was outside uh, of his home. Well, you got there. And, you know, obviously, we're really happy you were there. You were 12 feet apart during the course of the uh, interview. Uh, he, he at one point also said the president seems to be erratic. Uh, just elaborate a little bit on how angry he is at the current president of the United States for what he said and what he's done, especially in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. Glad you went up to uh, Wilmington, Delaware. I know you drove by yourself in your own car. Uh, that's the safe way to do it, obviously. And our crew drove in a separate car. Uh, Dana, thank you very much. for. It's the nightmare of 2012 and 2016 all over again. They allow Democrats to get on there, toss them softballs so they can bash their opponent, say untruthful things. But the worst part, our social media was on board with that, but they weren't editing things and fact-checking things. But now Twitter, when they were perceived to be part of the campaign are actually part of the campaign. They're going to be working for Biden and Democrats. And they're going to fact check, deceptive edit, do all these things to just not Trump. It'll be everyone who's conservative. And ignore their false assertions. And I don't need to list it. If you listen to this show, you've heard him for four fucking years. Smoking guns, snippets of statements used as fact to push an agenda that him, his voting base, Southerners, Christian, gun owners, basically non-progs, are all evil people, un-American. And that is garbage. Which brings me to our closing soundbite, which is garbage. MSN, MSDNC and CNN spend their whole time mass shaming and talking about how horrible it is. It's because of Trump. Because remember, anybody who follows a conservative is a sheep. Anybody who follows a Democrat is a patriot. And this piece was once again a southern hit piece of... People not in mask. And listen to this patriot walk by. So are the people there just not worried about it, Cal? Are they not worried about their own personal safety? I haven't met anybody who is. I met some folks actually from Lake Geneva who lived in the area. They were staying a few miles outside of town where I were. And they said they're worried about it. They're worried about that second spike. They're worried about folks coming in from Chicago. But they'll quickly add at the same time, this is a place that relies on that business. I think people here want a little bit more funding when it comes to these programs so that they could stay closed. But again, I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's, uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. Katie. Striking images. Cal Perry. Cal, thank you very much. And Kathy Park, you are. Your crew is it. And that is par for the course through everything we deal with, with the media and Democrats. It's do as I say, not as I do. And who the fuck are you to question me? I'm smarter than you. I'm more patriotic than you. I am perfect. And I'm here to take care of you. 
We're taking away your guns, locking in your fucking homes, using federal money for contact trace and releasing everybody who has a virus, but we don't do that for HIV. It's not even illegal to fuck people with HIV and infect them because that's stigmatization. And it's affecting gay people, and that's really something we don't want to do. We're going to shit on your Memorial Day. And we're going to make everything fucking racist. This was a tough podcast to get through. I don't usually have this much crazy shit. But that's a lot of fucking crazy shit. All in one show. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Pocket Static, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, Downcast, and Pocket Cast. Make sure you check out the Facebook page of FOP Podcast, and the Twitter account is FOP Tony Reed. We're going to go with the first of June, Year of Our Lord 2020 podcast. It's Monday. Until then, enjoy your family. Disconnect from all your devices. Get out and see the world. If you want to wear a mask like I do, wear it. If you don't, don't. Yesterday we went junking in a little town called Union City, found three good antique malls, went to a great Italian restaurant, Muthasa's, I think it's what it's called, delicious. We wore gloves in, no masks, then we put our masks back on. We stayed away from crowds, but when we were in the building, we had masks and gloves. And then we decontaminated, we got in our car. Around me, nobody was wearing masks. They weren't Trump supporters. They weren't Fox listeners. Just people weren't wearing them. And that's their right. Because it's America. Free will. Freedom. It's something we're losing. And we will totally lose. Unless we vote for the orange man. Which is scary. That's probably the most disgusting thing about this. I'm not defending Trump in these podcasts. I'm just saying how ridiculous the assault is. All the while knowing he is embarrassing at times. His fucking Twitter feed's disgusting. I don't know why he does it. But the jabs he has to take just because he doesn't have a D behind his name. Wow. Especially the Scarborough this week. Come on. That came from Democrats. But you're not going to say that in your reporting, so. Yeah. Dublin, you take care of yourself over there. Everybody else, thank you for listening. Please take care and tune in Monday for another show. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Every day counts.